Hi, this is Matt Bronger. This is Sean McBride. You're listening to Australian Survivor Archive. covering the complete history of Australian Survivor from Whaler's Way right through to the current day. And we have a very, very special episode for you today. We are speaking to a couple of people behind the scenes, not people that you've seen on the camera, not people who are involved in other aspects where you're going to get all the juicy gossip, real behind the scenes people. And our first guest, I'm, I'm very excited to chat to today because not only did this person work on the very first season of Australian Survivor all the way back in 2001 when it was filmed, he's also worked on the very modern version of Australian Survivor, the Channel 10 version, including being involved with my esteemed co-host. I will start off by saying that my name is Ben Waterworth and let my esteemed co-host talk and introduce him further. Hi, listeners. Hi, Ben. As you know, my name's Matt Dyson, and it is a very special episode today. We, we, we've done so many uh, interviews with, with past contestants and and uh, you know the host, Lincoln, and uh, today you're right. We, we go behind the scenes. I think it's a, uh, it's a good way to sort of get to the end of this season to uh, get some stories that happen behind the camera. So today we've got a very special guest in the cameraman who worked on the 2001 Whaler's Way, Mr. Matt Bronger. G'day, guys. How's everybody going? We're going great, Matt. How about you? This is confusing for me. I just want to say I've got two bloody Matts on the line, so I don't know how I'm going to like direct these questions if all of a sudden I've got to refer to one Matt over the other. But uh, no, we're, we're good. How are you? This must be a, a unique request. I don't know how often you get asked to be interviewed and talk about your time on a show like Survivor. Well, not very often. I probably never been on camera much before in my life i've been doing this for 30 years and i think this is about the first great well i'm glad we can be the first for you matt we'll be gentle uh, i think that's what we generally do right matt it is and and matt we we, we try to go gentle yes we do but uh, matt it, it's you you're in that unique position where you did work and you were involved in the very first channel nine australian survivor season and, and like Ben said, you you work on current day uh, seasons for Channel Ten, including my season. But uh, and that's very unique because uh, we haven't come across anyone that's uh, been involved in the in the I guess the the old school Survivor and the new school Survivor. Well, there's a couple of us still left. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's about two or three, I think, still do uh, exactly that. There's a couple of soundos. Um, yeah, but I've been lucky, so. Um, they did it all the way back then when I was a youngster and now I can still do it, so it's not too bad. How do you get into camera work? Was it something that you kind of fell into? Was it something you'd always been looking to get into? How, how did it all come about? Well, I'm I'm very old now. but No, I'm in, in my 50s now, but I started uh, early 80s fixing cameras and working in a 
like a camera gear house, and then um, it went from there. I I thought, wow, this this looks like fun. So I got like a lot of us boys. Um, I got into news. I filmed news for Channel Ten for I think five, six, seven years, and then um, covered you know anything and everything. Um, and then I um, I went to Wildwater Sports and filmed shows like Sport, um, Sport Sunday and uh, stuff like that. And then basically went freelance. And a lot of the boys sort of follow that path. In the old days, we used to. Um, these days, there's a lot of colleges and things that turn out people, and and it's still hard to get into. But having um, a lot of the boys in reality tell you that you know you have a news background, so that really helps when you're shooting reality television or, you know, shows like Survivor, The Block, you know, anything and everything. You, you, you've you got to watch, observe and cover what's happening in front of you. And, um, you know, having that news background and, and, and the sport background as well helped me a lot. And, um, yeah, and I've gone on from there to do anything and everything. So um, it, it's been great. And I was lucky enough to... Uh, uh, in two, 2001, I was working at Nine on a little show called Our House with Shirley Strawn, and um, I threw my hat in the ring. And how the hell I got the gig, I don't know, because it was pretty coveted back then. Um, and I got the gig, and um, because I'm a little bit crazy, a little bit, I like to keep fit, they gave me a lot of the crazy stuff to do on that show, which was good. So um, here we are. It must be a big difference, yeah. Like you said, one minute you're you're filming a show involving Shirley Strawn. That's a name I haven't heard for a while. But reality uh, um, TV was so fresh in 2001. Of course, the very first uh, American Survivor season was was in 2000. Um, so it was it was very brand new. Like there'd been nothing like this. It had only been sort of 18 months old. And in Australia, like this was the first ever sort of big reality TV show, um, Survivor. So did you sort of know what you were getting yourself into or was that half the fun of being involved in a show like this? Well, we, you know, as a freelancer and as a, as a you know, I, as I, I'd done uh, wide water sports and stuff. So I've been in some pretty extreme situations. So, um, you know, you combine all that because Survivor is is. You know, one one minute you're um, running along chasing you knuckleheads, and then the next minute you're just sitting there and you're, you're observing people. So, um, you know, I had a, we we'd watched obviously we'd watched the American one and we had a bit of an idea, but you know, you just you open your eyes and you use your techniques that you know. You shoot what you've got to shoot, and um, we had a blast. I mean, that first one, um, you know. The, the camera gear was a bit more cumbersome, but you know, not a lot different to what we're doing now. You know, you still got you still got to watch, learn, and uh, watch, listen, and um, capture those moments. So, um, you know, we went into it, and we're pretty well briefed, and and it was it was it was a good fun time. Just how coveted was it? How how many people were vying for that? position to, oh. to be a camera operator on the show well i was young and silly and just gone freelance you know for a couple of years so it, it I probably wasn't until after i got the gig that i realized how many people really wanted to get it and some some bloody good cameramen missed out you know so um i was just lucky um our industry 
is like any industry, you've got a network and, you know, I knew some of the producers and some of the people and I was lucky. That's all it is. And um, and then once you get there, you've got to work real hard and and get on with people and, and that was it. So the, the great thing is I, I got to do it with my um, brother because back then, uh, which is different to what it is now, back then you were linked up with a sound person, right? And um, my brother was my sound person um, back then. And so we were linked up and uh, there was, I think there was nine camera crews on the first one. And so we all had our own individual sounders and mine was my brother Craig and then everybody else was linked up. Now, Matt, you would, you remember the soundos running around everywhere separate to us. Back then, we were wired in together. So uh, wherever I went, my brother had to go, you know. So um, that was a difference. Um, I think I remember the first um, challenge we did on, on um, Whaler's Way where they had to find the camps. We were traipsed kilometres through the bush, connected to our sounder. He's tripping over things, you know, big, heavy gear. That was pretty physically hard. And um, you're right. Back then we thought, what the hell have we got ourselves into? But, <laughs> you know, it's fun. And um, you just, you know, what we do is we tell a story, and that's what it's about. you just got to tell a story. And that's the beauty of Survivor is that we don't control anything that goes on. We watch, observe, and capture it, and that's all we can do. We're not even allowed to talk to you guys, as you'd know, Matt. Back then, we did a little bit, but, um, you know, it, it's all about storytelling. That's what it's about. So, Matt, how, how does it work? Is there, like, a senior cameraman, or who decides who gets, like, the best, I guess, the best gig? Like, because in challenges, obviously, they need cameramen at different uh, areas and different stuff. Is there, like, is there, like, a pecking order? Um, look, there is now. There was not uh, on the original Survivor. Uh, the, the Channel 9 one. Um, guys, uh, there was no head cameraman on the original Survivor. So we all, you know, we all got on really well. So you get slotted in, you got different shifts. I tended to do some of the extreme stuff because uh, I'm a little crazy. Like I abseiled down cliffs and, and jumped and was hanging out of helicopters and I had a dive ticket. So I scuba dived and things like that. So that those sorts of challenge suited me some of the other guys you know and it, it, some guys are more suited to the tribal council where they're really good at watching observing all that sort of stuff and that that tends to happen now as well but the, the difference between then and now we have a head cameraman benny um and he's a genius and he's the dop he's in charge of um everything basically the look of the show who we hire all that sort of stuff and he tends to do tribal council, um, the challenges. He sets up the beaches, but he doesn't tend to come down and film on the beaches so much. Um, he's then he's off looking at other challenges and prepping and all that stuff with the director. Um, so then you, you still have um, cameramen who um, suit certain roles, I suppose. Um, some of the guys like tribal councils, so they get a bit more of that. Some guys love to be on the early shifts and they, they do a lot of that. Some of the guys have got drone licenses, so they, they get slotted into different spots. Um, I love it all. So I, I really love being on the beaches mostly. So um, the American 
cruise run it a little bit different. They have um, they have a reality crew, so the guys that are on the beaches, the cameras doing that, and then they um, they have another separate crew for uh, tribal council and challenges, for instance. And they cross over a little bit, but we tend to do everything the Aussies. Um, and a lot of the guys on our current show, uh, Aussies, have, have done a lot on the American seasons as well. Like there's a guy called Webby. I think he's done the most seasons of anybody on the planet. So, wow. Uh, so, um, you know, there's, there's just, you know, I'm a bit probably fitter than some of them, but then some other guy, and so I'll run around a lot on the beaches. Um, but then some of the other guys are really good, as I say, at getting those real, sitting back and getting those great looks or those great shots or um, or at tribal council, specific cameras there. So, you know, it's it, it's a good, fun crew. You know, there's never a crossword. We have a ball, so. Was there many people on the very first season, the Channel 9 season, that had worked on particularly the Australian Outback that had worked on the US one? Did you have anybody kind of helping you out in that first season? That's a long time ago, mate. But I, I don't think so. I don't think there might have been some behind the scenes, but no, none of the cameras, no, or sounders. Well, given that it's so fresh, I mean, reality TV, Matt kind of mentioned, obviously still very brand new at that point, of course, particularly in Australia. Do you remember sort of those early meetings of kind of like, okay, this is what you do, this is how you do it, and how do you go into something like that with no experience in in that genre of television going into work and trying to work out, okay, well, this is what maybe an average day is going to be like for me out here? Um, We didn't have that many briefings because... We were all pretty experienced cameramen for a start. Um, I'd done shows like, jeez, um, had I done the, the original Block, for instance, and that's a that's a completely um, different show. But having said that, it's exactly the same as in you observe, you tell stories. So we all, we all had really good instincts about how to tell a story and and, and what to look for. Um, we'd all shot sport. You shoot sport, you know, you can shoot a challenge. So um, we had Steve Peters there, you know, guidance along the way too. He's the EP. And um, so we had a pretty good idea. And we also had a director, Woody, um, that called the shots as well. So, um, you know, we once you get into it and you get into the swing of things, it didn't take long. Didn't take long to work out what we were doing. How early were you out there before they started shooting? And, and did you kind of have to go around and do some of those sweeping shots beforehand, get a fancy shot of an emu or something like that? Was a lot of that done before the players arrived? Uh, no. Um, it, it, we, oh, jeez. That's a long time ago. I remember we, we all, half of us met on the, not, not camera crews, because a lot of the camera crews knew each other. But half the crew met on the plane going from Adelaide to Port Lincoln. And I remember um, there were those little pockets, I think, with the overwing. And I think it took us two or three goes to even land because <laughs> there was no radar at the airport. I don't know if you uh, talked to anybody about that, but it was no. pretty scary. We had wow. to try to 
we had to kind of circle the airport and then we couldn't land and we had to go back again. So I think half of us were tonked by the time we got there. So <laughs> yeah, we got to know each other pretty well. But I think I think it took us two or three goes to even land at Port Lincoln and and they stuck us all. That was funny. They stuck all the camera crews a um, little bit out of town. So there was 18 blokes uh, and they stuck us all in a, a hotel together. So it was very funny. <laughs> Some funny time, and we, yeah, oh, yeah, we, and we couldn't back then. You know, they hadn't quite worked out what was going on, so they had no transport for us on our days off. So we went into town and bought a. Uh, we all threw fifty bucks in, and we bought an old uh, Ford station wagon, <laughs> and that was our crew car. And each crew got to um, paint and decorate a different part of the car. So we had this this thing called Wham Bam. And we had it decorated in um, decoupage and we scrapped old fishing nets to the roof. We painted the bonnet a different colour to the um, uh, the doors. It was it was hilarious. So it was a good fun time having all those boys um, and, and doing some fun stuff. For they, anyone we, that... From I was going to say, for anyone that has the official handbook, I know there's actually... I've seen a picture of this car that you talk about and they actually... They uh, they do a little write up about it on the um, on the official in the official handbook and say that at the end I think you guys sold sold it off or whatever at the I end of the shoot. But... Yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> what was... um <laughs> well, eighteen blokes in a uh, <laughs> out of, out of town. I could imagine what for for a good couple of months. I'd imagine there was some uh, good times had. We bought a barbecue and um, you know, but I often see. You'd have, uh, you'd all be um, changing over shifts, you know. So there wasn't no 18 blokes there all the time. So, you know, you might have a day off with a couple other fellas. And we all got on real well. Most of us, a lot of us came from Sydney. There was a couple from Melbourne, I think. But a lot of the cameras were from Sydney. Um, so we all knew each other. Yeah, we had a great time. How does that compare to modern-day Survivor when you've obviously probably got more of a bit of a permanent facility? It's probably a little bit more professional now, I can imagine, or is it still just 18 blokes with a cheap car and a Barbie basically chilling back? <laughs> no, well, I don't know about more professional, but um, we stay in a – well, I've done two, two PG ones. So um, we stay at a place called Hot Springs. Um, <laughs> it's like a giant prison. No, I'm just – it's not really, but it's just a hotel room and uh, you get catered for um, pretty long shifts. You'll be on uh, a 10 or a 12 hour shift. And um, so you basically eat, eat and work and do a bit of exercise here and there. <laughs> and a day, a day, six, six days a week, you have a day off uh, once a week and, and that's about it. But um, the, the, you know, you know, it's not it's not a lot different, but we've probably got more a few more camera assistants, and probably a few more crews than we had back then. Um, but you still got to look after your own camera gear. You've got to because it's all uh, the Australian show. We all provide our own camera gear. The American show a bit different. They they get supplied camera gear, so we're all looking after our own gear and um, cleaning it every night. You know, because we're up. Sometimes we're waist deep in water. Um, so you got to you got to look after your gear. If you don't treat your gear well, well it goes down, and you haven't got a show of it. So um, yeah, we um, 
we have a good time. I've just found in in the official handbook that uh, the Wham Bam vehicle that you uh, were talking about. So it was called Wham Bam because the number plate started with was Wham Wham three five nine. It was a Ford <laughs> Falcon station wagon, and at at the end it was auctioned off for charity by the radio station Magic FM. Ah, oh. how much did we get? Where well, does Say it doesn't say this was uh, auctioned off for charity, and I we'll put this photo up on our social media, Matt. But uh, it's great on the bonnet. Someone has has drawn or painted a whale, so yeah, that very me. fitting. Was that you? That was me. And my brother did the bonnet. That is brilliant. Obviously, for Whaler's Way, that is uh, yeah, a good piece of a little bit of history there. There you go, blue and black, wasn't it? Blue black, yep, or wham bam. But uh, Matt, so how hard was it? We know that Whaler's Way at that time was was freezing. It was uh, forty years. I think it was some record in, in in for that period how cold it was. That must make it hard for for you guys, the crew, being out there filming it in freezing cold conditions. Uh, we've often talked to the the contestants about how hard it was for. You know, them being out there for 39 days in the freezing cold. Lincoln's talked about it, how he would have to be, of course, on the boat, the great beyond. And uh, he would be freezing hosting it. And he wasn't allowed to really wear a, wear a jacket because he had to appear that he was, you know, strong and, and it didn't worry him. But what about for you guys? We, we I guess we don't really think about that. Like all the crew members out there in the freezing cold. Yeah, well, luckily <laughs> we have the... Um the bonus of we could put an extra jumper on or, or whatever and um it was cold it was it was crazy because it was cold one minute and hot the next i remember there was points where there was a thousand flies on somebody's back and it was boiling hot and the next minute it's freezing cold um but we're lucky we you know we got all the high-tech gear we can put you know you just suck it up <laughs> it's not the first time but you know i've st- stood out in front of a quarter or at a murder scene for six hours waiting for a body to come out and, and that can be cold too in the middle of winter. So, you know, I, I have the attitude that you just look around and you go, oh, my God, I'm getting paid to do this. Uh, how good is it? Just suck it up, princess, you know. Uh, and then, you, as you know, you were on, um, you're in Fiji. It's bloody cold in some of those tropical places as well. Yeah. Um, and it can be wet and we get, you just stand there. We have no protection. You stand there in the rain. That's it. Mm. So... You've got to make sure your gear is covered up um, and, you know, we can wear gloves. We can uh, look after ourselves. There was a, I remember there was a challenge at, um, uh, uh, on, on the Whalers Way series where they had to stand on a pole, I think, in the water. Oh, I didn't think I've ever been so cold in my life, but I was rugged up and um, one of them got hypothermia, if I remember yeah. rightly. Yeah, actually, that that would have been uh, Shona. Um, we've just interviewed Shona recently, and she actually mentioned that that uh, that would probably be the one where they were out on the pontoon, and her and Katie lasted over three and a half hours. And when they came off, both of them had to get medical treatment, and uh, they were really low. And they, yeah, they uh, Shona actually mentioned that they they put them into like the back of a wagon for for a couple of hours with the heater on just to try to get their temperature back up. So, uh, look, it, it was no doubt Whaler's Way were, was was tough conditions. What um, Another thing, too, there was so much secrecy around that season. It was, you know, that they the show was behind the scenes was called The Great Beyond. I don't know if you remember that, but, uh, you know, people had fake IDs. The contestants all had fake names um, when they were down in Port Lincoln prior to the show starting. But they, they, 
Channel 9 were adamant they didn't want to reveal that they were shooting first ever Australian Survivor in Whaler's Way. They were pretending to shoot the show, a travel show called The Great Beyond. Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I do remember that uh, vaguely. And we weren't allowed, yeah, we weren't allowed to mention it, where, what we're doing, where we're going. They were trying to, I think they were trying to throw out a roost that it was in Queensland or it was here or it was there. But no, they they tried to keep it a secret. I don't know if they did. I can't remember. That's a long time ago. But I think it was the worst. I think it was the the worst kept secret. Uh, <laughs> well, they ended up having yeah. Spot Lincoln in Lincoln, didn't they? For the uh, the radio station, might have been Magic. Um, that basically, when it was all the the gist was out, and they realised that Lincoln was the host, it was kind of you know, oh, if you spot Lincoln in Lincoln, we'll give you you know a, a free T shirt or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I used to work with Lincoln, um, great bloke, back in Hinch days, current affairs days, wow. news days. So that's – I had a good connection with Lincoln. His kids were my kids' ages and, you know, I still see him occasionally. So um, he's a great fella. When you're out there filming, and again, back to the point of it being early days, I mean, it's all second nature to you now, but – had you been in a situation like that with, with people that you're not obviously meant to talk to? Like here you are filming, you've got a camera right in somebody's face and it's not like I guess on some other shoot where you can be like, oh, can you just go to the left and give me this, give me that? It's sort of a little bit more natural back then. I mean, is that difficult getting used to things like that? Um, yeah, like because, well, for instance, I'd done the block and I uh, that was new as well, but we were able to talk to them and you are able to manipulate them and, you know, a lot of part of my job is manipulating people all the time. But on that show on Survivor, you can't because you can't. Look, you know, we probably talked to them. I talked to them way more back then than I do now. We don't even acknowledge now. We might say, move to the left, sit here, do that. We don't even make any communications to them now. Back then, we did a little bit. But the funny thing was we weren't allowed to give our names out, so... Um, they started, we started, I think it was the contestants started to call us Tim. <laughs> so everybody was called Tim. <laughs> so me and my brother were the brothers, Tim. We had um, an Asian buddy of mine. They called him Sweet and Sour Tim. So everybody had a the Bush Tim. Was, yeah, it was very funny. Oh, but I'll, I'll oh. tell you a funny story. I don't know if anyone's told you this one. Um, so... When we when we originally um, did the one in two thousand and one, um, we shot it on a format called uh, digital beta cam, okay, which which are like a beta max tape, okay, whatever. Uh, it's different now, um, but back then we shot the tapes. It was all it wasn't ingested into a system like like it is now. They stockpile the tapes, you know, day, all that stuff, right? So us cameramen, there's nine of us and nine soundos. We made, we thought, so how are we going to, this is, this could be fun. So we started to get shots of our, um, so we, we, you'd do a shot where you pan across a sunset and here's a shot of an arse <laughs> or a naked guy, right? So, and we just did it on the end of, like, every couple of days you'd just do each crew, True story. Would get a shot of you know, no no gratuitous nudity, but like a bum shot or somebody in the distance nude. You might have a pretty sunset and somebody just walked through it nude, 
or one of the boys I remember walking through the campsite just with his boots on. We didn't tell any producers. We didn't tell anybody because um, we wanted them to see it at the end when they started editing it. They just see these bums come up. And, the, and I remember the last, I think it was the last challenge, there was about oh, 12 to 14 of us left at the challenge and we look around, there's no producers and we all locked off a camera and ran naked into the water. <laughs> Four, 14 of us down the beach. So it, that was that was a funny little moment. And and then when the editors came back to start, they, can't, they start seeing bums and going, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> it was very funny. Well, Matt, I'm glad you came clean about that because your good friend, Mr. Lincoln Howes, he asked yeah. me to ask you about the hair in the gate scandal. <laughs> he, so is that what yeah, they... He, the, hair he, the, he, the hair in the gate. The hair in the gate. That's the one. Oh, did so? Did did you find out the end result? Like, did the were the editors having a laugh when they? I mean, oh, yeah. I'm sure they would have been. Uh, yeah, they did. They had a laugh. <laughs> did you ever get? Did you ever convince Lincoln to maybe do a bit of a, a nudie run past? Uh, I don't think he knew about it at the time. Oh. I'm not sure. There was a bit of there was a bit of nudity going on, like um, at the rap party and things like that. Oh yeah. From who? So. Oh, I can't. I can't kiss. Him. Oh, now you have to. <laughs> Come on, it's been nearly twenty years. <laughs> I, I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, producers and cameramen and things like that. So, so not Lincoln. Oh, Lincoln you know, didn't get nude. Far, far too, I don't think Lincoln got nude. No, but there was a few producers that did. Right. It's fun <laughs> stuff, you know. So does that just? I know that was nearly twenty years ago. Does that stuff still go on in oh. in current day? Of course it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. No, we're all really well behaved now. Yes. None of that would ever happen in, in, in that side of things. Nah, what nah, what was nah. an average day like, Matt? Like, I mean, you're sort of talking about the shifts and you're kind of, you know, getting that. But at the very beginning when you're sort of still, you know, getting to, to learn it and that sort of stuff, I mean, are you sort of one day you're at Kadena, one day you're at Tapara, you know, are, are you being designated challenge duty, tribal council duty? Is that how it worked back then? Uh, because we were all in different shifts, they kind of rotated a bit. And some guys liked tribal council, for instance. And then you say you might go to the production manager and say, oh, I really like this shift or that shift. I, me and my brother loved the early shift, um, which I think was about a 5.30 a.m. start. So sun coming up, I always liked the early shifts because – you tend to get um, some of the good storylines as well in the morning and those beautiful shots of early morning light and all that sort of stuff. Um, and a lot of animals were about. I, you know, I've never seen so many animals in my life as down there. It was unbelievable. Like snakes everywhere, uh, emus everywhere, koalas prancing through the, the camp, um, kangaroos everywhere. So it was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool location. It's just cold, <laughs> you know. So would they, like, would the boss there or the executive producer, would he say, look, we need certain shots of that, of certain animals? Because I know in the Whaler's Way there was, there was a lot of often shots. There was a, what was that lizard, uh, Leslie. Ben? There was always, Leslie the lizard. Um, like a, le, we called it Leslie the lizard. Yeah, yeah. But Well, what? if you saw it, you shoot it, you know. Because um, uh, you, you're traipsing around and, and often – um, just say you got two crews on at the um, at the camp and they're not doing much because at the end they 
especially on on our uh, that first series, you know, they did live in the dirt. They didn't get fed as much as probably what they do now. I don't think. So they were low on energy. So if if it's ten o'clock in the morning, there's not much going on. Me and my brother would go and look for wildlife to shoot. Um, these days, we kind of have a designated guy that um, goes off and does that sort of stuff. Um, and techniques have changed a little bit as well. So back then, if you saw it, you shoot it. And that that happens as you're shooting, uh, even just reality during the day. If you see a good shot, you just grab it. Um, and that was a stunning location, Whaler's Way. Um it, it was before drones as well. And, and it's one thing yeah. Ben and I have talked a lot about because they actually used a helicopter to do the aerial shots. A lot of the, the really ones of the, of the beautiful cliffs at Whaler's Way um, was obviously had to be used by a helicopter. So did you ever get in the helicopter and actually take yeah. any footage? Yeah, that was, that, that was my, I was doing the helicopter stuff. So, um, yeah, that was my stuff, I think. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, we did a bit of that. Um, we do that. We might have even done some of that just before we started. But yeah, here and there we got got up there, and like we also had shifts where um, uh, you might be on pretties for the day. So when I say pretties, um, you got half a day go off and film beautiful sunsets or beautiful shots of beaches or. Um, you know, there's a couple of instances. There's one instance where I, with this crazy SAS bloke or Special Forces bloke, I forget his name. But I, be, there, that would be Sean, Sean McBride. Probably Sean. There was this, there was this um, sort of cove that was off the cliffs, and the cliffs were about 300 feet high. Because I know that because we had two ropes that were 150 meter, uh, 150 feet long, that I and I abseiled down with a camera on my back. Oh, God, I'd never do it now. And an underwater housing, and I jumped into this lagoon with all these fur seals. And um, it was insane. Like, these things were swimming around me. I think you might have seen shots of these fur seals. And these things had never seen a human because you can't get a boat into where they were. And um, it, was, it was amazing. And then we had to climb or prussic back out with a giant camera on my back and a tripod and a you just never do it now the ohs would <laughs> never allow you to do that <laughs> yeah we did some silly stuff on that one like I, I was you know um scuba diving between the you know the little whaler's way heads a couple of times you know without shark nets without nothing so uh, it was pretty scary <laughs> sometimes so you, you when you take silly. when you're taking those risks like is 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 there a bonus for if you get, like like you said, if you get these shots of the seal or is it just for the fact that, you know, you love it and you, you want to make it the best you can? Yeah, I, I think that's more it. it. It's the fact that I'm crazy and I like doing stupid things like that. So uh, no one told me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when the whale, there was a whale that um, came in to the, to the bay and I just happened to be right there and he followed me for 45 minutes. So... Um, uh, that was luck, you know. I didn't go chasing him. He came to me. So um, that he was probably five feet away from my camera at for 45 minutes. He just followed me around. So that was incredible. 
uh, um, back whale. Well, we, we actually and talked about that at length. I think that's what a lot led to us yeah. uh, tracking you down to talk to you about it because we, we definitely spoke highly in that episode about how amazing that footage was. And I guess it's, it's moments like that where, you know, if you're not expecting it, then that's just gold as a cameraman, I can imagine. Absolutely. And um, sometimes, you, you know, things happen like that. You just, I was, I was actually just getting shots of the giant ring as it was a giant ring they were shooting cricket balls into. And all of a sudden I look up and there's this whale has just planted itself underneath. And, and it, it got its fin kind of caught around one of the ropes. And I don't know if it was caught or if it was just playing, but I went in and I moved the rope away. And then, and then swam away from the whale, and then he just started to follow me. And I'd swim on my back with the camera between my legs. And the reason I know it was 45 minutes because I had a 45-minute tape in there, and I just rolled for 45 minutes. And then I went on my back, and he just followed me. And he would, he would roll around and flap his big fin, and then, then he'd go underneath me and do some rolls underwater, and then pop back up. And he, he wasn't scared of me and he, he I was not trying to do anything too much but then I I would occasionally go down under him and film up and and they had to stop the challenge they were all sitting on the edge of the cliff just watching it was a pretty cool moment you know I've not many things I've done as cool as that with animals I've done a lot with animals but not not that well shark infested waters out that way so I bet you're glad it was a it was a humpback and not a great white well, yeah, you do think about that, but I think there's more danger in the drive into Whaler's Way. <laughs> well, we, we, we heard about a, a, a car accident. Uh, were you involved in that, or do you remember what happened with that? No, I, I wasn't involved, no, but I know the bloke who was. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think he was doing some time trialling. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got to the bottom of that one, Matt. There was a. You drove off the bitumen, which was a dirt, a dirt road, and I think there was a bit of a. Um, he was trying to beat his record from getting there to the camp. So. Nice. Yeah, that was, <laughs> I think there was an incident. <laughs> you, you mentioned about having a, a 45 minute tape. Now, I mean, equipment back then did you just like have a bag with a certain amount of tapes like were you kind of you knew how long your shift was because you had a certain amount of tapes to record a certain amount of footage how did that work no we we always carry a spare like that was a different camera but like when we're normally shooting we'll have a spare disc and we have camera assistance and i can't remember if we had radios back then but now we are all linked up with radios and stuff so um if you need something, you just call up and a disc comes or it's, or a, these days it's disc or card-based um, and you're supplied with it. But we, I usually carry spare batteries and, and tapes on us. So it's not an, not an issue. Outside of all the, the technical uh, side of things in terms of, you know, shooting then to today, is it just is it a lot more digitised now? Do you get more footage out of one CD or, or, or um, card than you would back then on sort of that Betamax one that you are talking about? Um, yeah, I think we got double the amount now on a disc. Um, but back then, that was great cameras. Gee, that camera, the camera we used on our Survivor was 
they were a brand new thing in 2001. And I think I was still shooting Biggest Loser on that until 2012. Wow. So um, that camera was a workhorse and still one of my favourite cameras Fantastic. that we ever used. And the, you know, the current day camera we use now, um, which superseded that camera, um, you know, that's been a workhorse as well and is not that different to the original one. You know, it's a bit faster. It's a bit. It's no. It's, it's just as big, if not bigger. So, you know, technology. You think it's going forward, but sometimes not so much. You still have to frame a shot, and um, no difference there. I remember when Survivor first started, you know, this whole idea of reality TV, particularly with the US version, when it was revealed that they would get the contestants to maybe go and walk along the beach again so they can get a better shot of it. People were like, oh, that's not reality TV. That's fake. You know, you're getting them to do this. It's not natural. We all know now that's commonplace when it comes to reality television. But how much of that went on, do you remember, back in Wales Way? Like, hey, can you just walk that way again for me for a great shot? I mean, did that happen? Or were you trying to make it as natural as you possibly could and didn't do things like that? No, we didn't do much of that, honestly, um, that I can recall. Um even now we don't, uh, you know, we might, no, I, I don't think so. Because that, that's the thing, you've got to anticipate and um, you've got to be one step ahead of them, where they're going to go, what they're going to do. Um, we do that now, same thing back then, you know, it's observational television, not necessarily reality television, it's observational, you know, we're telling a story. Um it, it, none of it's set up. It's not like, um, you know, a, a show like Maths is a, a little bit set up here and there and um, or some of the other shows I do. But that's just the nature of the beast. Um, no, but not much change from then to now. We, we don't set things up. We, we try and – and you don't have to. This is what I always say to people. Like I, I shoot um, – you know, sorry to harp on about the block. I'm just using that as an example because it's it's a um, similar. I think it's a similar show because it's observational television. We don't set anything up on that show. The same thing. You you don't need to. All you do is add water, and the contestants will do it for you. So that's survivors. The same as a lot of these shows. We don't need to set things up. You don't need to get people to do it again. You've just got to capture it on, on the time. You know. One thing I've always been fascinated about in terms of confessionals is the, I love the locations that you'll have. Like sometimes you'll have somebody sitting on a fancy rock there. And I mean, we had Craig on season one sitting in a tree at some point. Are you in control of where they sit or is that a producer's role to say, oh, this would be a great shot of them talking to the camera here? No, no. We decide that more or less. Oh, look, you, yeah, you're always talking to the producer, but no, i oh. The cameraman usually decides where they sit. And if we don't like you, we'll make you sit on a really sharp rock. <laughs> Matt, how many sharp rocks did you sit yeah, on? Your bum, Matt. Your, your bum must be sore. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just thinking, I know when I was doing my confessionals, yeah, there'll be times when you'd, you'd they'd set you up and you'd start talking and then they'd be like, oh, no, no hang on a sec, we don't quite like that or the sun's not quite right. And then, yeah, and then they'd, they'd get you to move maybe around a little bit, you know, five metres to the left or something. And, yeah. and yep, that's and then, and then you'd start talking. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's all about angles, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, it's quite a uh, 
it, it might look easy to make somebody uh, look fabulous on a beach like that, uh, but it, you know you got to you got to remember there's uh, how many contestants now? There's twenty. Is it twenty four? I can't remember. Um, you got to do twenty four different interviews and and make them look different and all that. So that's why we pick and choose and move around a bit. So because you, sometimes you got to try and make them look a bit different here and there. And you know we got to make you look good. Um, it, it, you can always look at a bad interview and go, oh, that's bad. But when the you don't notice the good ones, if you know what I'm saying, because they just look good. I suppose, and and natural, and where sometimes they're not, you're not sitting naturally, are you? No, no. You, you mentioned before about like capturing stories. Are you getting a daily briefing, sort of, from a producer saying, okay, this is an interesting storyline, like this player and this player aren't getting along. Can you try and focus a little bit to see if you can capture any of this fighting going on? Yeah. Look, um, as in the first one, and as in now, we. When you come on a show like this, well, especially me, especially all the boys, you get invested in it. So you all want to know who the people are, what's going on. Even when you've got a day off, you're like texting your mates, who's going, what's going on. Um, so even like before before we do the series, we got to brief on each person. Um, and, you know, you've got to – I try and memorise straight away all their names because that's important. You've got 12 people on a beach and they, a producer's in your ear. Can you get a shot of this person? This person's talking to that person. So I try and memorise the names real fast. But, yeah, um, uh, so you, you – and often we get to interview all you guys before we start as well, so you get to know their personalities and stuff. Um, and then there'll always be, you know, before we start the series, uh, a little – video that might get played of each, you know, like your audition video. So you get a bit of a handle on, I, I get a pretty good handle on a person after about 20 seconds. So, um, and, and that's as cameramen, that's what we are. We're psychologists as well. So you've got to be able to read people. You've got to be able to see what they're doing. And we get briefed before, like if we move into a shift, um, we get a quick brief on what's going on by a producer. And then, you know, you're pretty worked out. When we go to tribal council, for instance, uh, one of the producers will give us a rundown what's happened during the day or what's happened during the, um, the scramble or the rumble. Um, so we're pretty well informed about what's going on all the time. Um, but the, the, the key to shooting Survivor especially is, is those looks. You... you you see those little looks that happen or that little moment. And that's all about, you know, you can tell when that person's going to talk to that person or whatever. And they're the key moments for everything. I, I think we, we listening to what you're saying. Um, but for me, I, I tune out of that and I more look at what people are, read their faces, read their body language. And that's, that's how you tell a story as well. Can you then also judge who is maybe playing up for the camera a little bit more or is that something that after a certain amount of time it, it's hard for a person to keep that up deeper in the game oh look i, I tell everybody in any of these shows just be yourself because i'm going to catch you out either way so um you can tell straight away when people are playing up or, or not being themselves 
um, you know, that you can read them pretty easy. And, you know, like somebody like Dave, you thought he was completely over the top, but that was just him, you know. He, he was himself the whole time. Hilarious, but himself. It's you're a really interesting person to be able to kind of get a viewpoint on sort of something we've talked a lot about, particularly, you know, you mentioned Dave Rob, of course, on the, on the first season as well, you know, played a, yeah. an amazing game. Somebody who no uh, doubt right. has, has worked with both of them. You filmed both of them. Do, can you in, uh, as a fan, I guess, kind of see their games at a firsthand level and can you say, think back and go, okay, well, one person is better than the other. Like, how would you weigh in that debate? Dave versus Rob as the greatest Australian survivor player of all time. Well, see, Rob had never seen survivor. It was new then. And the way they played, they, they didn't strategize for a while. They were working the game out as they went as well, weren't they? Um, whereas now, Dave's a super fan. Dave, um, you know, he's, Obviously, he's done two series, and plus he um, he's been able to watch it and see. So these days, they get straight on the beach. They're strategizing straight away. They're working each other out straight away. Back then, it wasn't so much that. And but that doesn't take anything away from Rob or the way he. Um, oh, you know, I'm just thinking back the way he read people and manipulated people, and um, yeah, he did real well. But I mean, Dave was amazing. I just cannot believe some of the situations he got himself into and out of. Um, but Rob was good too. I mean, he, he oh, I can't remember half the damn concessions back then, but... <laughs> you can't forget Rob. He did pretty well. He, he did pretty well. He, he knew how to play up to the camera, for you know, de- definitely. And like you said, it was very early days in reality TV. But what about modern day Survivor now? It's... Does it make it a bit easier, I guess, as a cameraman to, to get these great shots of, of people talking or playing up or whatever? Because the game has changed a lot. There's so many more twists, you know, like t- tribe swaps, hidden immunity idols, all these like people running off looking for hidden immunity idols. Like yeah. stuff that stuff that back in 2001, that, that, well, that didn't exist. You just had them yeah. around camp and going to challenges. So does it make it a bit easier, I guess, for your job to, to get these great shots? Um, yes and no. Um, I'm just thinking back. Um, yeah, I, I think we did sit around a little bit more in the old days, in the first series, because you're right, they weren't doing as much. And it was cold too, wasn't it? Um, yeah, and when it's hot, people are out and out and about moving more. And there's more... You know, I've only done the Fiji one, but there's more food around, so they're all they more food they can find and get. Whereas Whalers Way, it was the desert; they had nothing. <laughs> they had uh, pig face, pig face. That's it, pig face. And you know, half the time it was blowing forty knots, so they couldn't go fishing. And so the poor buggers, they 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 really they were stuck on the top of a plateau. They couldn't sort of wander around and do much. So uh, yeah. But having said that, Whaler's Way was a beautiful location. So, um, and probably more spread out than what we do now. You you saw Matt where we were this where we are now. Um, it's quite contained, isn't it? So, 
back on Wales way, you, you you did have a lot of good opportunities to get some amazing shots because it was a bigger location. You know what I mean? They could sort of travel a bit further. I remember was it Craig that went down and got a, a bee's nest. Yes, yeah, Craig that, did, and so those, Joel and Rob did yeah. as well. Yeah, on both different tribes. Yeah. So you had some of these great opportunities of getting, you know, people moving along those locations as well. Whereas in Fiji, it's it's a little bit too sort of uh, tighter, and they don't go as far. So I'm glad you brought that up, Matt, because I've actually said on this podcast before that like that whale shot you got was like, I just don't think we would get that in modern day Survivor now. And and for the reason you just said, like, it's a smaller location. Um, the the bees, I mentioned that too, so I'm glad you brought that up. Like, I, I there was no beehives or anything out, obviously, in, in the beaches of Fiji, but that would make it, like, how does that work? When, when they're knocking down the beehives, obviously the, they were all covered up from head to toe. They had their buffs over their head, their jumpers on. I'm guessing all then the crew, you, you, that's another thing we don't think about. I'm guessing you guys had to do the same thing because you don't want to be you know, stung by you know, a thousand bees. Um, I think I filmed that one and no, I'm an idiot because I just sort of stand back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think about it like that. Did you get stung? <laughs> no, but I, I stood back a bit. Don't worry about that. Uh, yeah, we've got good zoom lenses on those cameras. <laughs> so. <gasps> I remember doing that one, yeah. And he and he knocked it with a stick, and it came down or something. Yes, yeah. yeah. And and yeah. then uh, who was it, Ben? What someone got stung in the head? I think it was a Joel. Joel Joel's the one who ran and stuck his Rob. head in the water. Or Rob was also there, yeah. but because uh, that was yeah. when Tapara did it. But when Kadena did it, it was just it was Craig and Karen, wasn't it? They were they the only Karen, ones yeah. that were there doing it. But um, yeah, I mean, I I agree with Matt. Like it's kind of it, it is a unique thing about that that first season that kind of. And this is the thing we're discovering in doing this show and reliving this, this you know, great season one is that, you know, a lot of people are quick to kind of put in the back of their memory, forgetful, oh, that was a shit season, don't want to ever talk about it again. But revisiting it nearly 20 years later, discovering how beautiful it looks on camera and all this kind of stuff, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it brings back memories for us and we weren't even out there, Matt. Yeah. Well, the thing is, right, okay, um, Survivor has evolved and changed, absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's still about human interaction. The challenges are still, some of the simple challenges are still exactly the same. Stand on a pole, hold your arm out, do this, do that. Um, you know, there's some a lot more elaborate challenges. But there's also some simple ones that we did back then were just as good as they are now. Uh, and some of the, even some of the challenges that you do now, I love some of those real simple little ones, you know. Stand on one foot, do this, you know. Um Sure, it looks you've got drones and you've got um, you know big cranes and stuff. I mean, I'll send you a couple of behind the scenes. You'll be amazed. But um, but the challenges are still the same. The human react um, interaction still the same. So and that is the beauty of Survivor. It 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 really hasn't changed that much. But still, human interaction challenges and pe- people, you know pitting themselves against each other and simple little tests here and there. And it's great. That's why I love it. I mentioned before to you, Matt, that obviously modern day Survivor now, it's a little bit harder for you, you know, the cameraman, because you've got to do a lot more running around, people looking for idols. I, I have a funny story. And I think it's a perfect time to bring it up where obviously I only lasted a couple of days, but on that day two, uh, when I was looking for an idol, um, I was down, you know, 
going hard looking for an idol. And of course, I, I, from memory, that was I know there was a cameraman, there was a, would have been a sound guy, and I, I I thought I don't know if you work in teams of three or two. I have a feeling there was a third person there. Um, yeah. yeah, probably a producer, yeah. So I'm down there, and it's right at the end of, of, of the beach. There's heaps of rocks and stuff, and I'm looking in a rock wall and all that. There's you're climbing over rocks and all that. And, of course, you know, your team had to come follow me looking around. And this is, remember, day two, so the second day of filming. And I just remember I'm sort of looking. I hear this loud noise behind me, and as I look around – I think the cameraman slips on the, one of the rocks, the one of the big rocks where I'm, because I'm in in looking for uh, these hidden hidden idols, and just absolutely cracks his back on on the the top of this rock. I could hear it like from five meters away. It was nasty, and I turned around. I'm like, holy! I just stopped what I was doing. I'm like, holy shit! And it, the poor cameraman, he's moaning. He's like, oh, you you, you felt his pain, and he gets up, and. It was, I still remember that he was done. He's he just straight up there, basically just said, "I'm." I he was swearing, of course, like I'm fucking done. I want out. I'm, I don't want to do this shit anymore. Like, so I don't know whether this was his first survivor or what. But day two, he'd cracked his back on this right, and he he was ready to go home. He said he didn't. He, I think he probably wanted to go back to, to shooting the block or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, the block's harder than the survivor. I tell you. Really? But, oh yeah. Um, but uh, that I don't know who that would have been. <laughs> oh, oh. One of the, um, yeah, I don't know who that was. Well, well, it was one interesting. Officers, it was interesting because it was that much. I actually like because it was bad. Like, and I actually walked. I stopped what I was doing. I actually walked over and like helped him up. Like that was like, I was, I'm like oh shit! Like this guy's gonna be hurt. And I just remember like he was done. He he was. I don't know. Looking at the producer saying like I, I'm I'm I don't want to do this anymore. I'm out. I, I just want to go home. Like so yeah. I thought yeah. I, but, he went back and had a bourbon, and he would have been okay. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, of course. But you do, you do, you get little injuries here and there. I, I uh, I've been lucky, touch wood. I haven't, I didn't fall over much on that one. But um, uh, yeah, guys, guys do hurt themselves because you, you know you saw we're running backwards sometimes. You're climbing mm-hmm. over things. Um, you've got to stay pretty fit and active. Well, there's a compilation um, on the Surviving Survivor special where they kind of did a blooper reel with you guys. There was a whole sort of little two, three-minute section of just cameramen falling over every left, right and centre on that special. <laughs> there you go, poor little buggers. Anyway, I, I don't fall over too much. A few, a few, you know. But you are, you know, you're scrambling over. And Matt will tell you, those rocks on that bloody, at the end of that beach. You almost found that idol, by the way. Um, but anyway. So okay, I so obviously I'm a massive Survivor fan, and I remember on day one I was walking down the beach with Heath and just 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 chatting to Heath and trying trying to get a little alliance going with Heath. And I remember as I'm talking to him, I, I get to the end of the beach, I look over, and I, I don't even remember what Heath was saying after that because I'm thinking this this has got to be it. Like in my head, I'm like I need to get back down here. This is day one. I'm like. This, if, if I was a producer and I was hiding an idol, this would be the spot. So I didn't say anything. And I remember when, when I decided to go looking for one, I just made a beeline straight down there. And I'm thinking, well, past, past uh, series like in America, and that, they often put them in like the rock wall. And I remember I'm like looking in the holes and, and it was perfect. And I never found it. And I remember looking around to the juice. I'm like, this would be where if I was putting one out, I would hide one in here. And I did hear a rumor later on that I got very close to finding it. I think you did, yeah. I think there was one down there because we um, we have a bit of an idea of an area where they are, but um, we can't tell you, blokes. How is that when 
you are filming someone looking for an idol if you know where it is. Because, like, sometimes when I'm watching Survivor and you kind of have this shot where you're filming two people and then all of a sudden you pan the camera down because you know it's at their feet, but they don't know that. Like, is there a subtle way of doing that so a contestant isn't reading or why is the camera pointing down at my feet? That's a bit strange. Yeah, well, you've got to be careful because at the end of the day, it's a game show and we can't be influencing a game show, can we? No. We can't. So we get in big trouble if we tell you anything or if we point things out. So, no, I, you've got to be subtle about it. We might try and put you off, <laughs> but we're not going to show you where an idol That's is. why the guy um, fell over, Matt. That's why that guy fell yeah. over and was like, fuck my back, fuck my back. <laughs> Shit, he knows where the idol is. Quick, hide it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it is. It's a game show. So you, you can't be influencing. There's money up for grabs. I can't be telling you where an idol is. Well, I, I know uh, Russell Hans, who, of course, was, was, was on my season, got voted out second. Uh, he said in, in, in a lot of his podcasts and stuff that uh, when he was playing American Survivor, um, you know, because he's played about four times now, um, that what he would do, he would actually, with his alliance, he would say, okay, we're going to go search an area today. And he would say, we'll split up because obviously they're limited to how many you know, camera crew and, and producers they have. So if they're searching an area, they'll go down with like, say, three of them in their alliance. They would split up. And of course, then if they were in the area they thought the idol might be, that that they would, uh, the camera person would obviously have to follow the one that in the area where the, the, the you know, because I'd be searching for idols. So if he knew if they weren't following him, that he was looking in the wrong spot. And, and that, you know, one of his alliance members, they're following them, that maybe they're they're in the right area and then they would go and, and, and follow them. So I thought that was pretty crafty that uh, by Russell that, um, that you know, he, he's thinking outside the game that, well, if they're not following me, obviously I'm I'm in the, in the wrong area. Well, that worked well for him on our series. <laughs> well, he did, he did. Well, actually, he did find an idol and he just didn't yeah. play it. But. Yeah, but that was luck more than anything. Yeah, yeah. But, um. Yeah, yeah, but we also play games with you. Don't worry about that. Of course. Can you tell so, us any, Matt? You know, can you tell us can, any of those games? You can say that sort of stuff. Sorry? Can you tell us what those games are that you play with the contestants? Yeah, no. No? no. <laughs> I actually, I remember interviewing an American contestant many years ago and uh, they they talked about how they used to like to play with the camera people about how, like, they'd go out in the water and pretend to talk strategy or do this sort of stuff, but they were just, like, you know, teasing the camera people and the camera people were like, oh, what the fuck are you doing out here? Like, oh, I was just playing with you. I wanted to get wet for a while and they'd just go back to the beach and things like that. Oh, uh, you don't do that because then we'll get you back. <laughs> As I say, we'll make, we'll make you sit on a sharp rock. Sharp rock. You probably won't kiss and tell with this one, Matt, but, I mean, on any of the seasons that you filmed, have there been or has there been, like, a contestant where you're like, fuck, I hate this person, I can't stand filming them? Um, it's not that I can't stand filming them, yeah, but there's people you don't like in them, like all, all parts of life. But um, what I tell my kids, you know, you don't have to like everybody, but you just got to make them think you like them. So, um, no, yeah, I, I don't mind filming anybody, but yeah, some of them you go, oh, I hope they go, or I hope they stay, you know, you know. So at the start, at the start it's of human nature, isn't it? Yeah. At the start of the game, do the crew sort of pick who they think will win? Like, do you have like a little, a little pool, like a little raffle or something where you decide, okay, well, this we, is who you think is going to win? We do have a raffle. No, um. Oh, yeah, we do talk about that stuff, but, yeah, who knows when there's 24. Um, 
But um, we do have a, uh, a sweep that every tribal council, we, um, you put five bucks in and we guess a time how long tribal council is going to go for. All right. Oh. What's the longest and one you've been involved in? Involved in? Huh? What's the longest one? I've never won. You've never won? Oh, jeez. Oh, over two hours. Right. Wow. Wow. Two hours. What about the shortest? Was that Matt's? Was Matt just like, fuck off, get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> no, even the short ones I drag out. I think the shortest one was about 49 minutes. That was Matt's. Tell me it was Matt's. <laughs> no, mine, mine dragged out for ages, Ben. I was on fire. Mine <laughs> was probably the long fire. one. I can't remember if I was at your one or not. I think I was. Yeah. Yeah, you just started blowing up. And what was that like, Matt? What was it like watching him just, just go like that? Because it's fun watching it on TV. I can imagine it's even better live. Yeah, that's right. Because you don't see every little bit on television, do you? No. So, well, they uh, they did cut out a, a fair bit of what happened, what, what was getting said, but... Uh, yeah, it's oh look, I'm sure I've been I'm sure you've seen a lot of interesting uh, tribal councils over the years, Matt. That you, I guess you never know what someone's going to say, do you? That's right, and um, and you don't want I don't want to watch as a viewer vanilla people. Uh, you want people with opinions. You want people saying it how it is. That's what I love. Uh, you know, I had no problem with what you did for sure. Um, you got to have a crack. Yeah. Um, and. As I say, I don't want to watch 24 boring people on television, do you? You want people you hate. You want people you like. You want opinionated people, soft people, hard people. That's the beauty of Survivor, you know. And any of these shows. If you get an emotion from somebody that goes, oh, I hate that person, well, you've done your job well, haven't you? You've cast well. Yeah, exactly. Do you sort of, I mean, tribal council is obviously incredibly different in whalers way than they are to today. I mean, can, can you remember sort of back to those tribal councils where you're clearly not in, not getting as much entertainment as you are out of, you know, like I mean, Matt's tribal council, for example, a lot is happening, whereas back then it was very just A, B, C, you voted out, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. It was on top of that bloody cliff and it was freezing cold, <laughs> I remember that. One of the boys had a coffee machine. He used to, <laughs> to crank it up. But, yeah, I think... Oh, I can't recall too much of the tribal councils back then, but it was a lot simpler and a lot quicker. I remember that. These days, because I think um, there's a lot more strategy uh, in the game, everybody plays the game so much harder and they know how to play the game. Anybody who comes on Survivor now, except for maybe Ross, (laughs) um, (laughs) he knows how to play the game. (laughs) And, uh, and they strategize. So there's a lot more to probably talk about at Tribal as well, isn't there? Because a lot more goes on. With with Tribal Council now, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because this is only what I, I've heard or read, at least in the US version, I believe they have a camera for every person, right? They have like a camera fixed on every face, every person's face. Is that is that true? And do they do that in Australian Survivor now? So you are always ensuring you're getting emotion from every player at any given point? Um. Well, we've always got a group shot of, let's just say you've got 12 people up. Let's just say it's the first tribal act of the tribal council. Um, You've always got a a camera on Jonathan, of course. Um, And then you've got... um, We've got a group shot. So you've always always got 
a shot of all 12 people. And then you might have a camera that's got a group of three and a group of three. And then you've got another couple of guys hunting, just anticipating who's going to talk. Okay. We've got a director in over here. You can see it as well. And then you have different angles as well. So we're always covered. We never miss a person's comment, whether that's in a three shot, three people or, or a single shot of them. We, we don't really miss much. Um, and you've always got the audio of every single person. So if somebody whispers something in, and you can you can watch. You know, I, I film with both my eyes open. So my battery's about to die, would you believe? Let me, let me walk down and get it charge up. Um, but you're always um, watching with both your eyes open, you know. So you know what's going on. With the direction and everything kind of, you know, one thing with Whaler's Way, of course, was the cold conditions. There, there were very limited days where you'd have the girls out in their bikinis, the guys out in their speedos, you know, getting the skin shot. Is that something you're told, like, get the skin shot? And was, or was that something more back then? Are you getting that today? Kind of like, how does that work when it comes to that type of filming? Oh, no, no, no. You, you just, uh, yeah, if you see it, you shoot it. And it tells us, as I say, it's always all about telling a story too. If, if, if Dave's down there and it's a beautiful sunset and he's taking his shirt off and he's washing himself and it's just a great shot. So, um, you know, you, we don't get encouraged to get skin shots or anything like that. If you see it, you shoot it. On Whaler's Way, I know you sort of, um, you know, probably don't remember as much of that as you would with the two ones you've done with Channel 10. Do, do you remember having a favourite player back then at all? Kind of was there one particular one that you remember sort of really rooting for along that shoot? Yeah, I, I really liked um, – I actually did really like Rob. I thought he was a genuinely nice bloke. Um, Katie was mad, but I really liked her. Um, Craig, I really liked Craig. Uh, and, and, I, and I ended up um, catching up with him on the outside. He ended up working for my mate, would you believe? Um, <laughs> who else was there? Was it Lance? Yep. Yeah, Lance. He's a good fella. You know, there was a lot of good people on our series. There were, you know, Joel was a bit crazy, but he was still a good fella. Um, I can't, I can't remember half the contestants. Do, do, do you, do you remember Shona? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She is a, she was a nice lady. Do you remember Sylvan? Yeah. yeah. Sylvan. The, the rider. I remember the name. Won what did he do? Uh, yeah, he he won much. the car. He, he was a he was an author. He was an author, and uh, he um, Sylvan was an interesting character. He was on Cadena, so he was on the tribe that got decimated. But uh, yeah, he, he he won the car on the show, but had never never had his license. Uh, still still to this day has not got a really? license. Uh, I remember the name? Was he was he um, quite young mm-hmm. and a yeah, bit he, sort of in his twenties? Yeah, he, he often took. He, he often talked about his fantasy world. Yep. Oh, I, I remember him. I think and he's a bit, not vague, but a bit space cadetish. Space yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a pretty fair yeah. assessment, I would say, of Sylvan, yes. Yeah. yeah. With, with, <laughs> you mentioned Katie, and again, this might be something that you don't remember, I'm not sure, but obviously Katie's breakdown in the, in the final episode. Were you there? Were you filming that? Do you remember any of that if you were? Was that where she was standing on a rock? And sitting on a rock, and she said, "I want to just kill them." Yep, or she 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 said that she could yeah, kill I, someone. 
Yeah, I did that interview. Wow. She'd just come up wow. from the bottom of the cliff. Yeah. I wow. remember that. How is yeah. how is that, that when you've got someone in that emotional state basically wanting to kill someone? And we had Katie on recently. She said she was legit. She would have killed someone. So, like, I mean, this is – how do, how is that in that moment? Yeah, that was – I, I think I looked at the producer. It was Teague, I think, Teague McGrath. And we just sort of looked at each other like, wow, that's a good grab. Because you're always listening into what they're saying and you're listening, as once again, storyline. So um, – God, you're taking me back, my friend. I remember the shot, though. She was sitting on the edge of a rock looking back over the cliffs. And she had this uh, head turn. What made turn. it so kind of more sinister is the way she kind of goes, maybe I could kill one of them. The way she kind of looks off in the distance, almost like an evil Bond villain. It's not just like a dead yeah, yeah. to the camera. That made it even better. Yeah, and I've got a bad memory, and I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember she was looking right to left, and I'm, I'm, it was Teague McGrath. It was my mate, um, it, producer. It, yeah, it was a, it was a great shot because it was it must have been on top of the cliff, like not too far yeah. from the edge of the cliff, and like the sun in the background. It was just like, yeah, a perfect shot. And obviously, and obviously, look, Katie was highly emotional, and uh, and um, and and you know, those last couple of days she was there, she she definitely wasn't happy with Rob because Rob had sort of done the dirty on her with with Shona and Joel and. Uh, and uh, she was highly emotional. But, like, you've got a job to do, but you're still a human as well. Like, when you're getting these shots and you know it's a reality TV show and you know that they're going to obviously use this footage, you know, when they when they air this this show in three months' time, like, do sometimes do you think, although, like, it's a great shot, do you think, oh, like, that could hurt them when this goes to air? Like, because, I mean, we're all still human as well. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I, rem- I remember that grab, and I remember it, her saying that, and I thought, oh, they're going to use that. Mm. <laughs> but yeah. no, I, I don't. For me, it's um, they said it, they can't take it away. Mm. Um, I'm impartial to that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I don't get too involved. But, yeah, it's it's like it, it's on a lot of these reality shows where they go, oh, the producers maybe do this, the producers maybe say that. No, you said it. <laughs> We didn't make you say anything. So it was nobody that made you do this or go on this show. You did it. You said it. Own it, you know. After when it all aired and everything along those lines, what what was your view, Matt, just on the season in general? Were you kind of – were you proud because it was sort of the work that you did as somebody who liked the American Survivor? Were you thinking that it wasn't quite up to what people were expecting? Where did you fall on the opinion scale of that very first season? Oh, I thought it was pretty damn good. Uh, it's funny that well, even everybody talks about it now. They go, oh, we're doing Series 6. And I said, no, we're doing Series 7. <laughs> Everyone forgets that we did this one. Well, you, you're and, answering um, a question that I'm going to ask because we, we are the advocates on this show of calling Whaler's Way Season 1. We, we also refer to Channel 7's version of Season 2. So we say that the first Channel 10 one was Season 3, whereas most people refer to that as Season 1. Oh, I agree. Um, they even say it now, and and I say no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you because uh, you know there were there were, there were official shows. It was Australian Survivor. Um, there was no difference in what happened. They got stuck on a beach. They had to fight it out, and there was one winner. So you tell me how it's different and why it shouldn't be called Survivor One. There you go. That Matt, we've just got somebody who's been on both versions to to basically confirm that. But is I mean, working with Channel Ten though. 
are you privy to any conversations where, like, are there any ever references besides you guys who worked on that first season? Like, is there any ever thought process from Channel 10 or Endemol Shine of acknowledging yours? Or you just, you don't know what their thought process is on that? No, I don't know what their thought process is, but there's there's not many of us left that worked on that first one. So, um, there's a lot of people on the current show that have worked on the US one, so um, there's a lot of reference to that, to that, I suppose, especially with the challenges and all that sort of stuff. Uh, not many people ever reference that, other than a couple of old farts like me and a couple of mates who filmed uh, uh, the original Survivor uh, on, on Channel 9. Um, I think there's only me and another cameraman called Paul Bowen the only two that have done that did the original one and still do this one. So does your brother still in that, in this industry with, with, um, yeah, he's, he, uh, he is still in the industry, but the industry is involved as in, we don't necessarily work with the same sound persons anymore. So he, he ended up having a family and didn't, doesn't travel as much. I tend to travel a lot more and, um, so, and he's gone off on other things. I still work with him, um, which is the best. I do another show called Selling Houses Australia, and we do that for six months of the year with him. Uh, but survivors, no. I tend to, um, and hopefully, God, when this COVID thing finishes, we can do another one. For sure. Do you, are you aware of anyone who works on Channel 10's version now that was involved in the, in the Channel 7 celebrity version? No idea. I can't. I was overseas when the seven one was on, so I don't even know anything about it. I don't even know who was on it. I didn't see it. I was working. I was in the states for three years, so. So it wasn't even a case of no. somebody trying to track you down to to get you involved in it or anything like that. No, I I can't even remember it. I, I, I'm I'm sure some of the guys might have been on it, but um, uh, I don't know. I've never talked about it. No one ever talks about the seven months. Well, we will be soon. So <laughs> we, we will be helping that get out there. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, with, with David Janat, of course, he's just started a podcast and his very first guest he actually had on was Guy Leach, the winner of that season. And kind of that was really the first uh, in, in a very few instances that we're aware of where you've got the new school survivor kind of acknowledging the old school. We, we've got a great picture, Deb Pitt from Whaler's Way, uh, as, of course, she's a producer uh, outside in, in her regular life. She had a photo with her and Pia Miranda at the the recent Astors. So the kind of that was our first sort of real glimpse of a real old school versus real new school. And now with with Dave talking to Guy Leach, so there is a little bit of connect there. We know through our social media, some of the Channel Ten survivors sort of like our posts when we're posting stuff about old school survivors. So there does seem to be some acknowledgement, but it's it's sad that it's sort of. Uh, very few and far between that Whaler's Way gets often uh, shafted and completely ignored. Well, you, you know what it's like too. Is, is if a show moves to a different network, it's kind of they pretend that it didn't exist, you know. Yeah. So um, there's, I suppose, jealousies. I, I don't know. How, but, is, um, how is that just quickly on I that would, note? Yeah. You obviously worked on Big Brother recently. I mean, that's a similar page yeah. to Survivor, of course, where that's now been on all three networks. Difference is Big Brother acknowledges their history. I mean, obviously a much a bigger show at its peak Big Brother was, so it's kind of hard to ignore it at its peak when it was on 10. But why do you think that Big Brother is something that they seem to openly admit this show has been on other networks, whereas Survivor, they kind of ignore it? 
is it time? I don't know. You're right. Um, yeah. Although the current Big Brother is very different to the old one, but um, still the same, still stuck in a house, aren't they? Yeah. I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Is it because it was a – how many years was it between – 2001 when was the first uh, they went survivor? they went 2000 uh so oh. first survivor it was 2002 it aired then 2006 was channel 7 then 2016 was 10 so there was a 10 year gap whereas for big brother yeah, it was what 2001 to 2008 then channel 9 picked it up in 2012 ran for three years and then now yeah. seven's just started it this year so yeah a lot shorter gaps in between on big brother shorter gaps i suppose and um and I don't know. Big Brother was a. I, know, I, I suppose Survivor, in a way, is a bit of a niche market, is it? Well, Big Brother was massive Big Brother too. Was, did, that did was huge. Very, yeah, it was. Did have a very broad thing. I mean, the longevity of Survivor is amazing, and I can't see it finishing anytime soon. Uh, but. Um, is, could that be an explanation? I don't know. Possibly. You mentioned to us briefly off air, Matt, that um, you you even had the opportunity at some stage to work on the on the US version. I mean, w- were you tempted? Was that something that you kind of you wish you had have done? And and would it be something that if it was offered to you tomorrow, you'd be tempted to have a crack at the US version? Um. Yeah. I. It's funny. I came back from two thousand and one, and somehow the EP of their show or production manager contacted me and. Um, through Mahat Marine. Um, and then circumstance, kids, um, I was going to do it. And then the money back then wasn't as good. And I don't do things for the money, but back then I, I'd had a solid workload coming up and I thought, oh, I can't really let, let these people down to go off and, you know, gallant around an island for eight weeks or 10 weeks. And, and I passed it up. Um, I don't regret, I never regret anything I do because um, that shapes who we are, I suppose. But I went off and did some pretty amazing stuff anyway, so I'm not regretting it. And But to get back on, somehow I managed to jag getting back on it. And, um, oh, my God, I'm loving every second now that I do it. Every day you wake up and you go down to work on those beaches and do it. You, even if it's shitty and horrible, you just... I'm one of these people who's, you know, glasses not half full of overflowing and I get excited every day to go down there and, and do Survivor. That must have been a great moment then on that, that first day of, of Fiji because your, your first season you did for Channel 10 was, was actually Matt's season. You didn't do the, the first two yeah. Channel 10 ones. So given that that would have been at that point, what, a 17-year gap essentially between filming, I mean, were you taken right back into it like all of a sudden day one, like, holy crap, I miss this, this is amazing? Yeah, well, yeah, it was unreal. Um, but, you know, I've done so many different things over the years that it was just like shelling peas, I suppose, um, straight into it, absolutely straight into it. It did bring back memories of Whaler's Way, absolutely. But, you know, I've done so many things like Survivor as well that um, you just go into game mode, I suppose, and um, you shoot what you see. And um, it, it's worked out well for me. There's a, a podcast um, called Beyond Reality, which actually um, I believe it's Jane um, who works on Survivor. She she hosts. Um, and actually the whole concept of that podcast is to 
to do interviews from you know producers cameramen i'm just looking on here they've actually done one with uh with that cameraman um mr webb uh, what was webby. his name <laughs> webby yeah um paul webb but um and i've actually listened to a couple of their podcasts and they, they talk about yeah, it's interesting hearing about uh, some of these people. You know, they get into all this because of like the love of Survivor, and and um, they talk about like wanting to to get on a you know and, and actually be involved in a certain show behind the scenes because they love that show. Like, is there anything that you haven't done that uh, you would you would like to to be involved in? You mean show wise? Yeah. Um. I don't know. That's a funny one. I've done that many different things <laughs> that no, I, I, you know, like I'm about to do a ninja show for uh, this week. Um, no, I, I, I just to get excited every shot, every job I do, um, and looking forward to because it's so varied uh, about what I do. Um, I've done, you know. I'm not going to bore you, but I've done lots of stuff. So, you know, I just love every day getting up and filming stuff. So, and and that's the beauty of uh, being freelance. You know, one minute you you're talking to a prime minister, the next minute you're on Survivor, the next minute you're doing a renovation show, the next minute you're doing a car show, a bomb show, uh, a gun show, whatever. You know, I've, it's great. So, it's not really a job, is it? It's a, it's a lifestyle, sounds like it. I'm sure, I'm sure you've been asked this a million and one times, Matt, and I'm sure you guys probably talk about this when you're filming the show, but how do you think you would go on Survivor? Um, my wife always says you should go on Survivor. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't know until you do it. It's, it's, as Matt had attest to, it's, it's probably a bit of a mind fuck, isn't it? So, I, I don't know, um... Doing what I do, I, I know how to manipulate people. So, but can that backfire for you? Uh, you like Matt, you're a cop, aren't you? So you know yeah. how to, you know how to talk to people and get on with people. And I can do that. Um, but and physically, I can. I run ten k's a day, so physically, it wouldn't be a problem. Um, but yeah, some of it's luck too, I suppose. You just you link up with that right person. Um, you lay low at the right times, which you didn't, Matt. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know how I'd go. I don't know. The, the one thing I I think I've realised from it is, you know, yeah, you're right. Like, you, you can be the best person for working out when someone's lying to you, you know, manipulating people, getting to do things you want. That's all good. But that will only get you so far. Like, at the end of the yeah. day, you've still got to get – it still comes down to that social aspect of – who do you just get along with? But, you know, and if other people are getting along better with each other, it's going to put you on the outs. Like you, you might know they're lying to you, but that doesn't mean that you can work out a way to, to get you to stay. Like if you're outnumbered and you don't have an idol, it means you're probably a good chance of going home. So, you know, like sometimes, yeah, it's great having all those attributes that someone might not have, but it all comes down to the relationships you build with the people that are around you. And, and, and if, people have built better relationships they're going to be in a better position yeah look i i think i'll use dave as, as an example right um and this is probably how i would play the game and this is how i play life is the easiest subject in the world to get somebody to talk about is themselves and that what dave used to do 
is go around and find out about every single damn person on there. And he, he knew every single person, who they were, what made them tick. Now, a lot of people don't do that, as you know. Um, so that's how I would play the game, is to get to know everybody and, and listen to everybody. You don't have to like them. You've got to make them think you like them. And, and th I think that's a key. And that's what Dave did very well. Um, he got to know everybody. And he got to know how they tick. And, and, you know, genuinely got to know people. And that's what you've got to do, I think, on Survivor, whether that helps or not. But I think, it, I think it does. One thing you mentioned before, which is something I absolutely agree with, is that no matter when you look at Survivor, whether it be in 2020 or 2002, it, it's fundamentally the same game. You've worked on both, Matt. Are there big key differences that you can really sort of say between the two productions or are they essentially the same production just one's a little bit fresher and newer and happens to be in fiji rather than south australia yeah well technology's changed we've got different cameras and stuff but fundamentally the game's still the same isn't it you've still got to vote people out and all that um producer wise it's no real different i mean technically we we do different things to make it easier for ourselves or make it so we don't ever miss anything. And I don't know if we missed much last time, but we definitely don't miss anything now. Um, yeah, I suppose it's... They've learnt in that space of time how to do it really well. And I think we do it really well. Um, we don't miss much. Is it... Probably maybe not a question you can answer, really, but... Does budget make much of a difference? Channel 10 having a bit more of a budget to work with than Channel 9? I don't know. Was the original budget that much worse when you look back? Well, um, we haven't got an exact number on it, but, uh, I mean, at the time it was uh, apparently the most expensive um, non-entertainment show, sort of the you mm -hmm. know show ever shot in Australia. So, But uh, I believe from what we've been told, Channel 10 has a, a much bigger budget to play with. Yeah, well, you look also, the, the challenges are a lot of, more elaborate these days, uh, bigger crew. Um, but the fundamental game hasn't changed much, has it? Really? No. no. Um, but those challenges are pretty bloody amazing what happens now. Um, so that's, that's a different aspect to, to what we used to do big time, you know. Uh, and the sets, some of the sets they build, the art department are just incredible. Um, yeah, it was a lot simpler back then with those challenges. But you know the the although also the tribal council now it's pretty amazing what they do there. But it was pretty good back then for what we had. Um, and back then it was all this was all in its infancy. Uh, you know, art departments were just getting going. Um, uh, you know, so you know it's still, but it's ultimately still a fundamental the same game, isn't it? Do you think that the the length of days makes much of a difference from a you know cameraman pers perspective like obviously 39 days 55 and 50 days nowadays like i mean besides the the personal toll it would take you out there for a little bit longer than you would have been in 2001 does does it make much of a difference during the shoot for me it doesn't, I don't, doesn't bother me no because it's you know um i'm lucky i've got a great wife and kids are growing up so i don't care how long i'm out there for i love the current location is pretty amazing. So I get out and about and do things on my days off. So it's good fun. It doesn't bother me.
So I have to, I have to ask Matt, when you're filming in Fiji, are you buying a local Fijian vehicle, painting it up, <laughs> driving it, driving it into town, into Savu Savu? You know, is, I, is there still those shenanigans going on? Uh, there's plenty of shenanigans goes on. I, I take little adventures um, on my days off. A lot of the boys might sit around the pool and have a beer, but we can get shuttle buses everywhere when we're on um, Savu Savu and. Um, I tend to go on little adventures on my days off, like hikes or um, I'll go dot. Like the last, I remember the last uh, uh, snorkel I did before we finished the last series, I saw like 20 sharks. So I'll, I'll go out off the reef by myself and just wander around and look at things and do stuff. So, um, And then we have little parties here and there as well, occasionally. I, I hope they're giving you better accommodation than they 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 put us in uh, for that week prior to the game starting. I was staying in an absolute shithole. <laughs> Were you in the big white building on top? Oh, of <laughs> yes, yes, it was yeah, a shithole, and the food the food was friggin' terrible. <laughs> horrendous. I, Her- I it was pan. horrendous. Yeah, I take a fry pan from Australia and I cook my own food. No. <laughs> yeah, I actually got a little bit sick the the day before I was due to play. Yeah, the the food was just terrible. It was always cold. The room was terrible. Horrendous. And um, yeah, I actually got a bit sick like the day before I even went, which is not a good start to, to playing. Yeah, poor but, thing uh, then I having swear. to go sleep on the ground with no food oh, at all. <laughs> that must have been terrible. I mean, I, know. I have to ask, Matt, this is for Matt Bronger. I mean, this might be the only opportunity that I ever have to somebody, you know, from behind the scenes on the episode at the same time with Matt, at least for a few years. Do you have any memories from Mr. Matt Dyson in filming him or any memories on your thought process on him, not necessarily from tribal, just just Matt in general when you've got a camera and you're filming this beautifully bold Queensland police officer who's trying his hand at playing the game of Survivor? I mean, he was, it was tricky to make him look good on a beat. <laughs> <laughs> um, you probably, I mean, told you me could... to keep, probably told me to keep my shirt on. He's no Dave. <laughs> so there's those sunrise shots of him glistening in the water, washing his body and his yeah. six pack. And yeah. I bet you were glad oh, he got voted off, so he wasn't one of the nudie runs the next morning, weren't you? Oh, I it's all good. I'm a, I'm an ugly bald bloke as well, so it doesn't matter really. I can't throw stones. Oh, I'm not going to lie, Matt. I, I wasn't too impressed when, because as you know, like the first couple of days, you you only the, the contestants only get to to wear the clothes that they they started the game with, you know, so they they don't get their other items till till after the first tribal council, which of course I never survived. So, but I remember the very, like we're five minutes into the game and the first challenge is, is going down the, the, the slippery slide into, you know, in the water. And you had to, of course, get down to your, uh, well, I, I went into the game wearing long pants. I knew, I knew it was going to be cold out in, in the early hours in, in Savu Savu. So I wore like a long sleeve shirt and, and the long pants. And of course the first challenge five minutes into the game is sliding down the slide in the water. So I had to get down to my bloody Bond's underpants. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. Like, because of course I... Yeah. Oh, jeez. Silly bugger. Good times. It's, Matt, I mean... Yeah, good times. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show because there's, I mean, you said it, there's not many of you that have worked on both season one and sort of the modern day Channel 10 one. So there's very few people that we can sort of get on to compare the the different eras and it's been fascinating to kind of hear these stories from back then even to today and kind of share that because it is 
it is a show that obviously so many people love. It's it's hugely popular now compared to what it was in 2002, at least the Australian version that is. So it's it's unique insight for that. And, you know, we're, we're very grateful for your time today to be able to share these stories and everything. So, uh, I mean, I speak on my side of things. Matt will no doubt say something as well. But uh, it's it's been a lot of fun hearing these stories and uh, opening up that memory vault for you, Matt, all the way uh, back from 2001. Mate, I've killed a lot of brain cells between now and then. I think. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it, it's been good having you on, Matt. And uh, yeah, like we, we, you know, just recapping this Whalers Way season. You know, we, we, a big talking point was was of course that whale shot you did. I think for us, that's uh, you know that's why one of the reasons we really wanted to get you on the show because it was extraordinary. And uh, yeah, big thanks for you for uh, filming that. Thanks, boys. No, really, really good to chat to you. Um, best of luck with it all. It's um, I hope I gave you a little brief insight into um, what happens behind the scenes. So, thanks, fellas. Cheers. And as we say goodbye to one guest, it's actually time to introduce our next guest. We've not really done this before on Australian Survivor Archives, so I'm excited to always do something new for once. And I'm very excited to chat to our next guest because he's somebody who is going to have a lot of interesting and new things to say that I know Matt and I are going to be very intrigued to hear about. And as I am a nice person, I'm going to hand over to now the solitary Matt on this episode. It's not going to be as confusing for me now. It seems as if our next guest isn't called Matt anymore. Uh, Mr. Dyson, do a better introduction of uh, our next guest than I probably could do right now. Ben, yeah, look, these interviews are really exciting because we, we're, we're getting to see what happened behind the camera and it's something that I know a lot of our listeners launched Advisor on the very first season of Survivor. And better yet, I'm even a big fan because he's been to the one continent I haven't been to. He's known as Captain Antarctica. I talk of none other than Mr. Sean McBride. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, Sean, uh, because I, I don't know if I've ever spoken to a Captain Antarctica before, so I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose it's a, life takes you down some strange paths. It certainly but, does. Uh, the, aim of Captain, the aim of Captain Antarctica is to, um, to turn people onto Antarctica and to, um, to uh, help get people interested enough to protect it with everything that's going on in the world today with uh, climate change and, um, you know, plastics in the ocean and all that kind of thing. Well, sure, Sean, I, I've, since tracking you down, you know, I, I've been following you on, on social media and I absolutely love it. Like Antarctica, it, it blows my mind. It's, it's, a, it's the last continent I haven't been to it and I really want to get there. And just following you on social media is giving me that inspiration to, to really – make sure that I do get there one day. And it just seems like you've done so much in your life, you know, and even prior to being involved in Survivor, you know, like I said in the intro, you're a former Green Beret commando, which is, you know, in its own right, a, an amazing achievement. So, you know, I would just love to, to get our listeners and myself and Ben here to just find out, like, who is Sean McBride? Oh, well, thanks for that. Uh, you know, people often say that to me, Matt, about, you know you've done so much but when it's your own life it doesn't feel like that and when i step back from it i look at it i say well yeah i guess i have i have but but at the time <laughs> it's just you doing what you're doing you know uh i started teaching survival when i was about uh, 24 
And uh, I taught it for, well, uh, 30 years, I suppose. And it took me from Australia to Sweden, to the Arctic, to England, to America, uh, all over the place. Uh, I used to head off into the hills when I was 15 by myself and try and live off the land. And for years, I was wondering what I was going to do with my life. And I used to sit up on this hilltop doing my survival stuff. And then uh, it took a few years before it finally hit me that what I was doing was what I loved to do. And so that's when I started teaching it. And uh, I was teaching survival for many years before I uh, decided to, well, actually, I actually joined the commandos when I was 18, but I was uh, too much of a hippie. And I, I can't, it was a mutual, um, a mutual agreement that I should leave <laughs> after about three months. And uh, I always regretted it. So I actually went back when I was 32 and went through uh, special forces training. And uh, I can tell you, it's a lot harder at 32 than it is at 18. But uh, I did pretty well. I was pretty super fit. And uh, I guess I've had a pretty mixed life. <laughs> so, Sean, tell us then, how do you go from everything you just mentioned into working on a Australian version of Survivor. How, how does that opportunity present itself? Okay, well, I actually didn't find out until many years later, but a friend of mine who used to come and assist me on uh, running my Survivor courses, a good mate of mine who was also a um, former commander, uh, he put my name forward to Survivor because he was working in the film at the time of TV and um, they, they said you know what we really want is someone who could build an obstacle course and so you know I'm, I'm talking on the phone to them and I kind of went what and then I uh, put the phone back and I went oh yeah I can do that <laughs> no clue no clue at all the survival part of it was really secondary, I think. And uh, luckily, when when we actually got down there, the uh, the guy that was handling all the the sets and everything, Brian, um, he was very switched on guy. And I designed the the actual um, obstacle course, but uh, you know I didn't have the first clue really about how to build it. So luckily, Brian was there to sort that out. And so we we built this thing that was. It seemed to me it went for about like half a mile and probably could have been seen from space. Uh, but that was not never my original intention to be a, a an obstacle course builder. I just saw myself as a survival instructor. And, and we did some survival as well, you know. So you basically were brought in just for that. So did you have any other kind of input on challenges or any sort of, uh, you know, helping them get set up with camps and kind of other things like that as well? Yeah, actually, all of that. I mean, really, I, I was brought in more as the uh, games and challenges designer. And, and one of those games and challenges was the actual obstacle course that they, they ran. Uh, I went down... I guess about um well we spent we spent a month or two in the lead up to it actually testing out uh, building models and testing testing out ideas for actual games and challenges and then I went down maybe 
uh, maybe a month ahead, I suppose, and I scouted out where they would um, put the actual uh, camps and looked at all the different possibilities for, uh, you know, survival aspects, wild food, fishing, um, the, you know, water supplies, all that kind of stuff. And I trekked over that area, which is, um, it's not exactly remote, but it's, it's, um, it's fairly wild and windswept and it's got, um, it's got a huge amount of snakes everywhere. Snakes everywhere. Never seen so many snakes in my life. You went down there beforehand. You're probably the best person to ask this. What was your first impression of the location itself and for being like a survivor location? Uh, from a survival point of view, it wasn't too bad. Uh, but my first impression was, oh, my God, this place is bleak. <laughs> you know, it's – it's and, and they got a shock when they got there too because thinking that we're going to end up on a, an island in the Pacific. And here they are facing the winds coming directly from Antarctica. And uh, I could see the look on their faces. It was like, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the place was pretty, um, it was kind of scrubby, um, but it did, have, it did have food resources. And because it, it was not an area that's heavily traveled by people and was actually, from memory, private property, um, the, you know, the, it hadn't really been touched a lot, especially the ocean side of it. So it had a huge amount of uh, fish and shellfish and that kind of things. So, Sean, what was your first interaction with the actual contestants itself? Because I know in my season that we, you know, a couple of days prior to the show actually starting, we had like a survival tutorial where, you know, we had a survival expert run through just some basic survival techniques and how to live off the land. Did you do anything with that with the contestants? Well, the original plan was that I was supposed supposed to give them two days of survival training. And, uh, you know, that kept getting put back and put back. And then uh, it actually got to the day of their arrival, you know, and they, they came down the road in this bus, um, which looked like something from Mad Max. And they got out of the bus and they all had that base, like, where's our tropical island? We had this pretty pretty impressive base camp there. Uh, that was that was pretty cool. And I was running around doing things like that and, and going out in the bush and, and sorting things for the camps and whatever. And, and for the routes that they were going to take to get to certain things for the challenges. And I, I would ask them, uh, you know, so when are we supposed to be teaching these people some survival? And they would say, oh, yeah, look, we're just a bit busy at the moment, but, yeah, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. Anyway, this went on for a while. And then maybe, oh, it's a long time back now, I can't remember, but maybe about a week or so, maybe longer, two weeks into it, they said, are you okay to teach these people survival now? And I said, oh, yeah, okay, fine. I said, uh, how long have we got? And they said, about 15 minutes. <laughs> wow. And so I said, right. Um, I said, that's a bit limited, but we'll see what we can do. And so because they already had the camps set up and we knew that they had – shelter in terms of tarpaulin or whatever and i had it from a boar that was there our main concern was that they were going to need to know a bit about food because they they needed to supplement the minimal uh, calories we were giving them 
So the first thing I did was take them down to the coast. Uh, there's a rocky coast there, and I taught them how to put a double hook on a on a fishing line. And the beauty of that place was that you could throw a line in with this double hook, uh, you know, two hooks hanging off, and um, wait about 20 seconds and pull it back, and you'd have two fish. Wow! <laughs> right. So. I taught them that, and then I taught them some of the shellfish that they could eat there and also some of the crabs. Basically, the only thing I got a chance to teach them was the, um, was the fishing and the shellfish. And I showed them a couple of wild foods around the place, but not everything was actually in season at that time. And then a bit later on, you know, they, um, they were complaining about uh, uh, constipation. And I said to the one of the producers, um, you know, I can I can show them some wild foods that have come into season now that might help with that. And he said, No, no, no. We love constipation. <laughs> and I said, Steph, what? Why? And he said, Because it it makes great great film, you know, it makes great TV. And I said, Why is that? And so they showed me this bit where. One of these guys, they film him going off to go to the toilet and he goes off into the bush and then all you hear is this, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and I thought that was a bit mean of them actually. So uh, we were at one of the challenges down near the, the beach and I, I kind of pulled some of the guys aside and I said, um, look guys, they don't really want me to be teaching you this, but... This is a um, this is a wild fruit that you can eat, and there's plenty of it around now. So I suggest you start getting into it. And so, you know, we did that on the quiet, and they went off and probably denuded the whole was coastline. That of this. Was that pig face? That was pig face. It yeah. was pig face. Ah, oh, the pig face is born. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they were very happy about that because it's quite a nice wild fruit and easy easy to get. I don't think they uh, – there must have been none left of it on, on, on at Whaler's Way because they, they would seem to be eating that a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I think that was about the only decent wild fruit that was there. Everything else was a bit, uh, a bit scrubby. So talking about food, Sean, I mean, did you have any input on sort of just like their rations and everything? I know a lot of the guys have told us in terms of sort of the food that they kind of were given almost like the Geneva Convention amount of rice that, you know, prisoners of war were basically allowed to have. Was that your decision kind of? Did you have a say in kind of how all that was going to play out during the season? Yeah, look, I I think I did. I mean, it's a long time back now, and I think I did um, in that I spoke to them, the producers about it, um, now I could be wrong on that because uh, you know my memory, <laughs> my memory is not that great of it. But I remember thinking at the time they're all going to lose weight, and uh, I was a bit concerned about the um, the spread of nutrients because they they from memory they didn't have a lot. You know they had rice as a staple, and then they were supplementing that with the fish and the wild foods that I that I taught them. I think they had a few other things. Maybe they had some condiments or maybe salt and various things, but it wasn't a lot. And so I think I had an input and I think I was a bit concerned that they were only getting like 1,200 calories a day. But, you know, it wasn't going to kill them either. Well, I know we've had a lot of the, the, the contestants sort of say that you had mentioned to them at the time that, that they wanted to make it the hardest survivor that had been because we, we know there'd been two previous American versions and uh, – 
yeah, and they said that you, you had said to them at the time, like this this was the whole idea of this was we wanted to show that Australians can do it tough and this was going to be the toughest survivor that had been so far. Well, I think it was tough more so because of the um, the environment. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a bit of an artifice anyway. Um, you know, they're not generally left completely... You know, it's not like they're, they're dropped naked in the jungle or naked on an island or whatever. You know, there, there are some concessions given to them. And I think they were each allowed to bring something of their own from memory. Yeah. Um, but that environment there, like Whaler's Way, it was, it was quite cold a lot of the time, but the weather could change. You know, they, they used to say there were about five different seasons there and they'd all happen in, in one day. And you'd be going, I remember once we were out on the, um, the obstacle course and it, it kind of went from sunshine to rain to incredibly freezing cold wind to, to something else, you know. It was just this incredible variety all the time. And I remember the, uh, the young woman, I've forgotten the name now, who, who ended up voting herself off Lucinda. at the start. You know, um, the unfortunate thing was that the first challenge that I designed involve them getting into the ocean and you know she was pretty slim anyway and the combination of the ocean her slimness the lack of food and the fact that the wind would blow across there and freeze them to death i, I think i would have voted myself off uh so i think i think the the hardest thing was the environment i mean if you're if you're on a tropical island where it's quite the weather is um is pretty balmy that makes up for a lot in terms of even if your food intake is low in that. But Whaler's Way was a pretty, pretty harsh environment. And I had some contact with the local Aborigines there too, uh, kind of to, to swap knowledge and see if I could apply anything to, to the actual survivor. Uh, but it, it was always a harsh environment. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to have to survive out there for a long term. What, did the local Aborigines have to say? What kind of advice did you, I guess, get from them? Well, I, I uh, again, it was a long time ago, but I, I do remember, um, and we couldn't do this, but I do remember that one of the local Aborigines, uh, he had a, 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 a one of their favourite foods was uh, actually blue tongue lizard. And when I went to, to visit one day, they had blue tongue lizard in the fridge. <laughs> And, and I remember mentioning this to the producers, but I said, look, I think probably under Australian law, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly, but blue tongue lizards may be protected and we better not start feeding them to the survivors because one, some of them are not going to take to it and two, we're going to get a lot of complaints. <laughs> Poor Leslie the lizard, Matt, would have uh, probably been uh, dinner maybe if they had actually been able to, uh, to to get to that there. Interesting, going back just quickly to the, the challenges and you mentioning about the, the obstacle course, do you remember being given a budget were you told like this is how much you can spend or this is the amount of money you have to go get the materials uh yeah look i think there was it, it wasn't i don't think it was directly communicated to me but it was probably communicated to brian who was who was the set designer and they were always concerned about the budget so one of the problems was that 
we couldn't always go and just get stuff. And I think uh, from memory, that was one of the reasons why that first challenge didn't really work that well at the end, you know, uh, at the start. I mean, it was a pretty bad way to start the Survivor in that we had these, uh, I don't know if you remember, we had these bonfires they had to throw spears into and they had to go to a, into the ocean, bring this log up, use it as a bridge, cross over, and then get up on the stand and throw these spears. And one of the problems was that we they, I think they were jacking up about the, the cost of things and it still cost a fortune. I think, you know, it probably cost about, well, I'm guessing, but it might've cost $6 million for the whole show. Right. But they were, well, they were trying to keep a tight budget on it, as you would expect, but they, I think they were hesitant for us to go and buy some diesel, which would have made the fire, um, you know, take off. And so I was, I was stuck with uh, using uh, it was either methylated spirits or kerosene. I can't remember which one. And I poured that over these bonfires, but unfortunately because of the wind and everything there, it evaporated. And so when they threw, when they finally got a spear thrown into this bonfire, it didn't take because all the, all the inflammable material had, uh, or fluid had basically evaporated. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a downer for the start of Survivor that they couldn't do it. And I said, look, you know, they've, they've thrown a spear in, so they've, they've done it. Why don't we just set fire to the thing now? <laughs> right. But they didn't want to be in that. So it kind of like, it was a really bizarre start to a, um, to a reality TV show. So who got the blame for that? I, I, this is a big production uh, you know, it's a first major challenge. Was was there a bit of a blame game afterwards? That, oh, why did this happen? No, you know, to be honest, they were they were pretty good. I mean, I I fell on the sword about it myself, and I said to them, "Look, guys, this is my fault. You know, I should have um, should have worked out a way of getting some diesel, or a better way of getting this um, this thing going." Um, but you know, nothing kind of came back about it. They were, you know, to, to their credit, they were they were just trying to make the best of a, a bad situation. You know, they, they were pretty decent people about it, to be honest. With the other challenges, what inspiration did you try and take with them? Did you watch the two previous US seasons and try and maybe not necessarily copy them, but kind of take some inspiration? Was With your background, did you kind of go into it thinking like, this would be a good idea, this would be a good idea? How, how did that process come with creating the challenges for the season? Yeah, look, I, I draw, drew on um, a whole pile of things. I mean, it wasn't just me. I was working with um, one of the other guys there uh, coming up with these ideas and we'd bounce ideas off and, and then we'd say, uh, don't think that he'd say that's not going to work or, there's, you know, the budget of that would be too high or, or whatever it might be. Or he'd come up with one and I'd say, oh, yeah, look, that could work except that, you know, this. And uh, we'd test some of them out. We'd make models. We'd, we'd actually test some of the equipment out in parks and things like that. But I drew partly on um, the, the military, some of the things we did in the military for special forces. I drew on um, uh, various games that were out there and, and modified them for our kind of purposes. Um, some things were just off the top of my head. It's kind of like, what kind of thing would I like to do, you know, um, as a challenge? And um, yeah, it kind of went from there. I can't remember how many we actually came up with, maybe maybe 30, some were very simple and some were fairly complex. 
Was, in terms of the challenges and sort of the amount that you had, two-part question, like, were some kind of restricted around the budget and things that you maybe had an amazing challenge that you thought this would be great, but then, hey, you can't afford it, you can't do that. And also, was there kind of a thought process of, well, if we don't use it this season, if it's successful, there might be a second season, so then we can use it for the next season? I don't think, in answer to your second question, I don't think they actually thought ahead to a second season because I'm sure if it had been successful, they, they would have done it. But, you know, I think you have to understand what was going on behind the scenes in that they were reluctant in the first place to even make the first one. But it's part of the deal that they sign that um, the, that they have to produce a homegrown version of Survivor. And uh, I think Channel 9 were quite reluctant to do that because they realised the costs involved. And I think they tried to get out of it, but they couldn't. So they went ahead and did it. Uh, But they were cognizant of how much it was going to cost. So um, I'm not sure they ever intended to do a second season. And as far as the, um, the, the limitations... I can't remember them directly saying, no, you can't build that, you know, because we, we pretty much worked out all of the, um, all, of, all of the challenges well beforehand. And um, at the time, they didn't say anything about, well, look, that's going to be too ridiculous. You can't do that, you know. So, no, not really. We should mention, too, so the other person you talk about you're working closely with, that was Brian Hocking, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so what... So what was his, his exact role? Was he sort of like your boss kind of like, did you, or would you come up with ideas together? Uh, he, his role, I suppose, um, I, I wouldn't say he was my boss. We were kind of like partners in it. Um, he, but I deferred to him because he, he was a really experienced set designer, you know, and that wasn't my background. Uh, and, and I actually lived with Brian down there. We had accommodation together for the time we were there. And, and he was a bit of a character. Uh, uh, the thing I remember most about him was that he bought himself one of those WRXs. <laughs> and um, I don't know whether it was like a, a midlife crisis or whatever. I'm not sure how old he was at the time. But um, he he was already in his first few weeks, he was already up to $900 in fines for speeding. <laughs> <laughs> that, that always wow. stuck with me. Uh, but he was, a, he was a great guy and he was really um, talented. And he was the one that built the had the concept for the ship that they built. Right. And uh, so we, we, his real role, I suppose, was to, to put into reality the concepts that we'd come up with for the challenges. And sometimes he would come up with objections as to why, you know, can't really do it that way. We'd need to do it this way. And there was one, I remember that involved kind of like, triggering a trap and all the rest of it. And I, I wasn't quite sure how to go from a small trap in survival mode into, uh, you know, a, a full-fledged larger trap. And and Brian was like, yeah, no sweat, we can work that out. So, you know, he, he'd had many, many years doing stuff for TV and that. So he was great to work with. I can imagine it must be such a fun job, particularly at that era in Survivor, because if you were a challenge coordinator now, You've got 20 years 
of Survivor that you can kind of draw on. And I can imagine it'd be tricky now because you think, oh no, they did that in this season. Or, you know, it's, it's we often complain and bemoan in modern Survivor that all the challenges are the same or nothing's new because I guess it's kind of hard to. But you've kind of got an open canvas. You can create what you want and say what you will about the challenges on season one. And trust me, we will be saying some things about some of the challenges on that season, Sean. There were some yeah. very unique ideas that hold up very well. I think Matt and I discovered in re-watching it, there were some really great challenges that we would love to see again. So, I mean, were you kind of happy looking back on it now that you were in that era of survival where you just had such an open canvas to play with? Look, I I enjoyed my experience uh, on it. And at times um, it was quite difficult sometimes dealing with uh, various personalities because, you know, uh, the, the, the TV people are, are, are fairly close knit and you're a consultant, you're kind of an outsider to TV. So you don't really fit in that much. And you, you're just basically being used for your, your expertise at that time. Right. Um, but you know, we, we drew on those first couple of survivor um, programs from the States four ideas as well. And then we basically had open slather. Uh, and I think, I think at the time, you know, the, the same thing is, was done with another uh, number of other countries that they had to produce their own survivors. So there were, there were a few more survivors to draw from than just the um, American survivor. Uh, but again, we also didn't have the budget that they had and they, they had like, a, a film crew following every person around. Whereas I think we had two film crews following everyone around, you know, so, so that, that had an impact on it. I used to enjoy um, going to work each day. It was, it was pretty cool job to have, and it paid very well. Uh, interesting people. Um, I was out in the bush and, you know, compared to, I don't know if you knew about this, but compared to the survivors, our, meals were like there was the best restaurant i've ever eaten in it was like uh we had the most fantastic um chef and every day she would say i need a theme to the day what would you guys like for today we might say oh indian or mexican or smorgasbord or whatever and she would do it and it was just the best food i i never put on weight and i put on five kilos while i was on survivor <laughs> while while half a kilometre away, these people are losing losing kilograms per day. And I felt bad when I used to go out there. We, we had a rule. We were not allowed to carry any food with us, um, you know, when we went out to see these people. I mean, that would be, that would be quite tragic to be, you know, eating, eating Indian food with, a, with naan or some or roti or something like that, while these people are like sitting around eating their last few grains of rice. Eating pretty, pig pretty, face. Pig face. Eating yeah. pig face, yeah. I, I'm pretty and sure. Pig face is not a bad food, but it didn't compare to the food we were having back at the um back at the camp. Craig's gonna message us and go off like, why'd you get this dickhead on the show? I'm you know, I was starving my ass off out there and here you are playing this. <laughs> we're, 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 you sort of mentioned about kind of having, I guess, uh some issues with some of the TV people, but were there any challenges that were completely shut down? Did you do you remember of having like an idea or something which they said, nut nah, that won't work for TV, move on? Uh, look, I don't, um, I did one day, they, they, they were quite open. I mean, they were a good bunch of people, right? They, they were quite open to um, 
to doing stuff. And and to be fair, I didn't do every single one of the challenges. I think there was a there was one girl, I think Julie, who uh, came up with one of the challenges. It was quite a simple one, I think, that involved barrels of sand from memory, but mm. I can't remember. And um, the only the only disagreement I had, which I just handled quietly, was that one of the challenges involved them going out in the ocean to um, to do something. And I can't remember what it is now, but they were going to be in these boats. And these people were all fairly weak from lack of food and they weren't going to give them oars for the boats. So they were going to have to actually paddle with their hands. And on one hand, I thought one, this was dangerous. And two, I thought this is going to just wreck these people because um, it's, it's a difficult challenge and it's uh, going to take a lot of energy, which they're not getting back from the food that they're eating. So I just quietly went around to the boats and put, oars in <laughs> and I'm really <laughs> glad I did because when they got out there, they would have been, they would have been stuffed and they, they could have been swept out to sea for all I know, you know? So generally, no, there weren't any big issues, but it just occasionally I'd kind of take things into my own hands. One thing I did like about Whaler's Way and the, and the challenges was that there was, there was multiple locations you could, you could do challenges. What you just mentioned, you could do it in the water, we saw some on the beach. We saw some on top of the cliffs. The one that we really loved was where um, it's like a slingshot and, and they're, they're up on top of the, the, the fantastic cliffs there at Whaler's Way. Yeah. And, and they're, they're shooting bags of whatever down on into, and try to get them into a ring down in the water. What was your favourite location to do? Because And, of course, there was the obstacle course. Um, was, was there a particular area you preferred to, to do like the challenges in? Well, the coast was always nice. That one was a great one with the uh, with the the slingshots. Um, and the beauty of that too was that <clears throat> that girl Julie, who designed one of the other challenges, she actually built that ring that that we put out there. And that was the one I think that the whale came yeah. up and played with. Was I mean, awesome. how from a TV point of view, how cool is that? You know, that was great. Um, I wasn't fond of the the actual ocean challenges so much because they were a bit dangerous. And I also acted as kind of assistant to the safety guy, a Maori guy, a very nice bloke. Um, and we had a very underpowered little kind of Zodiac thing to zoom around in to kind of rescue anyone if we had to. And luckily we didn't, cause I think we would have died as well. Um, but I remember actually thinking about doing one, coming back to, to your question before, Ben, about I just remember one of the challenges was what I wanted to do was to put a, a treasure chest on the bottom of the, the water. I don't think we ever, ever did this one, but it was to put a treasure chest on, on the ocean floor, get them to go out to it, swim down, release uh, like a hydrogen balloon or something or an air, air balloon that would lift the the chest up and then get them to get the treasure out. You know, it was, it was a bit more involved than that, but I remember I put a guy up on the cliff. You've got to remember that that area down there is, has um, great whites in it. And I was, um, I was up on the, uh, I put a guy up on the cliff as a spotter and I put on some, uh, I had a wetsuit and I swam out to have a look to see how hard it was going to be for these people to swim out to this spot that I had in mind. And I'd keep looking back to him for any, 
you know, warning that there were sharks or whatever. And um, I, I'm swimming out and it was actually, it was quite hard to get out because the, the tide was quite strong or the surf was quite strong. And I was swimming away and I was swimming away and I looked back at him and it, he was fine. I looked, swim a bit more, I looked back at him, he's fine. I swim a bit more. And the next minute he's going <laughs> like this, <laughs> putting his arms out like this, doing this, you know, and I, so I turned around and came back and he said, oh, mate, there was some big stuff out there ahead of you. So um, I'm glad you came back in. So wow. I ended up sca- uh, just scrapping that, that particular challenge in that particular spot anyway. Well, I mean, what more can you do at that point, though, if he's like, going like, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, you're halfway out in the bloody ocean. I mean, <laughs> Well, luckily, he, he could see much further ahead than me. So right. he could see some stuff further out, which gave me time to turn around and come back. You mentioned that it was quite dangerous in the water. This didn't happen in a challenge, but towards the end of the, of the show, uh, Sophie was actually up on the cliffs. It's where they were often fish. And a massive wave came in and missed her by like one metre. Uh, yeah. If she would have got knocked off those cliffs and into that water, we, we know now you, you can get on and Google it. People drown often down at Whaler's Way. Was that a big concern for not just yourself, but production in general that, you know, someone could get knocked off those cliffs and, and, and end up drowning? I, I think it was a concern from a safety point of view. And they, you know, they, they had the safety guy there, but you can't um, contend with every eventuality. And you had people going, coming and going all the time. And I guess they didn't really have the um, the numbers to be able to watch everyone and and put safety stuff in in place. And you know the trouble with the with the ocean is that it's unpredictable. And you can have what's a relatively calm time, and then suddenly you just get this wave out of the blue that's a, a you know an unusual wave. And she was just pretty lucky, to be honest. I mean, that could have ended up very badly i don't know if they've had any deaths on survivor but that could have been the first one the a french guy i believe died just before it was about to start filming i think maybe that might be the only one. i think somebody mm. in brazil maybe a production member died but um I, I think off the top of my head the only time a contestant has died was on the french version and it didn't actually like they were just about to start filming so right. i don't know how they died now sean um i have to ask this question matt's been waiting for it and i'm going to get to it right now Episode 10, there was a challenge. Now, it involved a very simple concept. Uh, Contestants had to measure things. So they had to go find a a rock that weighed a certain amount of uh, weight. They had to try and find a stick that was a metre long. They had to try and measure water that was two litres of water. And then they had to guess each other's weight, just to name a few things. They just had to guess time as well. Now, first question for you, Sean, was this your idea or can you lay the blame on Julie or the other guy? Um, you know, I think, uh, I don't even remember that. And, and if, if <laughs> I don't want to be harsh, but if someone had, had come to me with that, I would have gone, that's stupid. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's correctly answered that one because uh, I've labeled that the worst challenge in survivor history. That was just an absolute joke of a challenge. So I was, ben hates in a, it. In a way I was it. hoping you would say that was your idea. So I could be like, what the hell were you thinking? But it's possible. But when you say that to me, I'm going, what? Yeah. Ben, Ben, I, 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 I don't even, I don't even recall. I think, I think if if I'd seen it at the time, I was probably so disgusted I turned my back on it <laughs> and didn't want to even know about it. 
And ben, thought- hate it. ben hates it, Sean. I actually don't – look, I don't think it's great. I, I don't think it's as bad as what Ben says it is, but Ben's adamant it's the worst challenge in history. Look, it wasn't great. There was one part of the challenge where the six contestants or so at the time, they had to line up with stopwatches and, and – couple of stopwatches didn't work as well. And it, it wasn't a great, it was a cheap challenge, but we know there wasn't a big budget either, but uh, it kind of, we've, we've sort of discussed it a lot on this podcast. And it, that one in particular did kind of have that feel of more of like a, a backyard sort of job where someone had come, quickly come up together with this, this, That'd be you like know, a backyard talent. survivor. Like if you were having a game of survivor with your mates on a weekend in your backyard, you'd play that. Like not on a you know multi million dollar production of uh, Australian television. Yeah, look, I I think you know it, it was a long time back, but I think I think at one point there there was a there was a situation where maybe we had planned for X number of challenges, and I'm all into like you know color and challenge and interesting stuff and i think we'd run out of challenges or or they had decided to put extended or put some challenges later on in the show or something like that and they decided they needed some extra ideas and so i remember one of the girls saying oh look you know we can do some simple stuff <laughs> and, julie and- it's julie's fault <laughs> and I, I don't want to blame Julie because I don't know. Blame Julie, Sean. I want you to blame Julie. Bloody Julie. <laughs> well, I can't say that that was her actual one. I know there was one she did with barrels and sand, I think. And and I think at that point I'd kind of gone, right, just do whatever you want. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> and and I, I'd gone off to go and work on some of the other challenges we were working on for maybe later. And so um, I deny all knowledge. Good. I, I don't <laughs> remember that Julie. I was even on that program. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Hashtag blame Julie. Yeah. So, Sean, did you have like a like a whiteboard set up and you had like, you know, day three challenge, day this is day six challenge? Well, you, you kind of did touch on it then, but uh, it's an interesting point and something that, you know, we, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. Like, do you sort of have like a big whiteboard and say like, know exactly kind of what challenge will be, or is it flexible? Can you say like, I know these days, if, if certain players, they want to keep on the show, you know, are better at swimming, you know, they might probably add in a few extra swimming challenges to kind of keep that player in. Did that kind of go on back then? Look, I think there was a certain element of that, but I think uh, we had worked out, whatever number of challenges it was, let's say it's 30. I can't remember. I think we'd worked them pretty much out. These were the challenges we were going to have. And we had them in order of how we were going to do them. Um, and, you know, the situations change when you're actually in the reality of it. So, you know, they were probably chopped and changed a little bit to some degree. And then there was that point where we needed a few more challenges where I, just went off and did my own thing while they came up with sticks and stopwatches and stuff. Don't <laughs> go there. Um, but but uh, on the whole, I don't think they. I don't think from memory that they actually tried to do that so much in terms of swing it towards people you know who might have had particular skills or that kind of thing. They, they might have. I mean, I, I'm not privy to everything that happened at the time or the producers thinking, but uh, I don't recall that as being the case. 
two challenges I'd just like to quickly highlight as well. Um, the gross food eating challenge, I mean, at that point in Survivor was a staple. Um, you know, I, I can imagine that's a fun one to try and work out what they've got to eat. And the other one too, which, I mean, it's not the best challenge in the world, but it's a unique challenge. It's it's the car driving challenge. Was that kind of one where it was sort of you were told like, hey, we've got a great vehicle here to give away, uh, come up with an idea to use this in a challenge, or did you just try and incorporate it some way yourself? Uh, I think we, uh, you know, we're talking, how long ago is it now? 20 years or so? Nearly. Yeah. Um, I remember that that must have been on the cards because I remember going up in the helicopter to look for a space where we could actually do the stuff with the cars. Um, now I don't, I don't even remember whether I came up with that challenge. That might've been something that the producers decided on because of the, the whole car issue. And I guess they needed to make it, relatively simple I, I don't remember what they did were they were they blindfolded yeah, or something driver was blindfolded and they were kind of yeah. given directions by so um, we, we went up in the helicopter and we found this area up there that was a fairly flat space that they could do it but because it doesn't register i'm not even sure if it was a challenge i came up with and the gross food eating challenge was that something that you were able to kind of like come up with the locals of what would be some gross things to eat yeah i'm pretty sure that i would have had an input into that one um having eaten a lot of gross wild foods and, and things in the past. Your mind must so, go crazy uh, though. You might like, seriously, like, do you just they go, make them eat dog shit? Like see how much <laughs> they want it. Here's a piece of dog shit. Eat it. <laughs> I don't know. Was that one of them, Ben? No, was that it wasn't. One? But like, I want to see it. I want to see well, that. I, I don't think you should be allowed near Survivor. No. Actually, <laughs> the I, I had on, on just on a slight tangent, I, I hosted a show for many years, Survivor Oz, based on the US Survivor. And one of the most famous American contestants, Jonathan Penner, um, I never forget, we, we used to ask a question years before in the US Survivor had ever happened. Like, if there was a tie in the final tribal council between the final people to win, how would they deadlock that tie? Now, we've seen that happen, of course, now, so we know how it is broken. But I never forget Jonathan Penner answer that question with, make them eat a piece of shit. You will see how much they want to win a million dollars when you got two people tied. Put a piece of shit in front of them, and whoever eats it first wins a million dollars. And see, that to me is like, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, and, and you, you know, like twenty million people would probably view. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd eat a piece of shit for a million dollars. So controversial that it would go on for years. Yeah, I mean, would uh. we? I would. Everyone in this room right now, if I had a million dollars, and so I'll give you a million bucks if you eat a piece of shit. I'm sure both of you are going to eat a piece of shit. I would. <laughs> My, well. I I, I don't I don't I don't come from the Bear Grylls school of survival. So I, I, I might defer on that one and let uh, and let um, Matt have the million dollars. <laughs> I uh, I would have had a tough enough time eating the sixteen fish eyes. That that was the final part of that challenge between uh, what was it, Sophie and Katie, and it came down to sixteen fish eyes and um Katie struggled on that one. She only got about six or seven of them down and and Sophie smashed it. I don't think it wouldn't have mattered what you put in front of Sophie's. Yeah, she would have gone she, she was willing to eat anything. Well, I think I think I must have come up with the fish eyes because I I remember um, sucking the fluid from behind the fish eyes of a fish in Sweden once um, as a, to to get water, um, and so I probably just extrapolated from that to um, eating fish eyes. Now, personally. I would not eat fish eyes. 
Well, this is what was so good about that challenge because after it, Sophie wins and Lance, Lance must have been so damn hungry. He'd already been out earlier in that challenge. He starts then eating the rest of the fish eyes out of Katie's bowl that she couldn't eat. And he's he had already lost the challenge. So that just shows you how hungry Lance must have been that he actually voluntarily ate the fish eyes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there was there was some calories there. I can understand that, you know, if you're really hungry. With the the two challenges in the finale. So we have the visually stunning one of kind of the walk, the plank. They're on that boat out in the water. It's a question and answer game. And obviously the more you get wrong, you kind of step back, you fall off. Visually, that looks fantastic. And then the final challenge, which because, you know, Survivor generally is for a very long time known for its final challenge. This was, you know, the big one. How much do you want to put your hand on an idol? Things like that. Um, Yours was kind of, based on the time guessing thing again, which I mean, Matt thought I was going to hate this because it was very similar to that one, but I didn't mind it. But as a final challenge, it maybe wasn't as sort of tension filled as perhaps it could have been. Do, do you remember those two challenges and were you involved in I, creating those? I actually, I actually don't. What was that one? So the the final challenge, basically you had um, Shona, Joel and Rob, and they were kind of in a little uh, enclave kind of covered up. And basically they had to guess when 39 minutes was up, they had a stopwatch, which basically um, they had to guess. And then they also had to light a fire where essentially, uh, sorry, they didn't have a stopwatch. They had to guess when 39 minutes was up and then light and hang their torch, a lit lantern at 39 minutes, basically. So sorry, the the stopwatch, I'm getting confused with the other challenge. But um, so, and that was kind of, that was kind of it. So kind of, you had Shona straight away, build the fire, get a fire ready because you could kind of keep the fire burning in your lantern. It was just when you hung it up and you had to guess when 39 minutes was because that signified 39 days. Well, because now that you described that to me, because that doesn't excite me at all, (laughs) I suspect... I, I like this, Sean. Very passive. Like, you're probably going, shit, that was my idea. They're not liking it. I don't remember it, Ben. So that mustn't have been my idea. <laughs> it's Julie's. Bloody Julie's Julie. It's, 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 um, it's my blanket uh, pattern going on here, you know, like, uh, <laughs> oh, that one sounds like it sucked. No, that wasn't mine. That was, uh, yeah, Julie did that one. No, Julie. someone else did that. You know what? Let's make, blame Brian this time. I want Brian to get a bit of blame. Yeah, yeah. oh, that Brian Hocking, he was a shocker. He used to come up with <laughs> terrible ideas and just, just put them out there over my over my objections all the time. You know, and you know what else? They invented coronavirus. Bloody Brian <laughs> and Julie. God Brian damn it. Brian Hocking and Julie, they were together on that. Oh. They went to Wuhan. They yeah. invented the virus. Got the bat and they just like, bugger it, spread it around the world. They were going to put the bat in the wild food challenge. Yes, of course. It makes well, sense no, now. Look, to, be, to be honest, I don't know who came up with that one because I, I suspect that either at the, by that point, I would have probably come up with something grandiose and they might have said, nah, that's going to cost too much money. Let's light a fire instead. Hmm. Um, because I don't, I, I don't think I would have come up with that one. So I, I suspect that's a producer. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that they would have done one like that because it seems a bit low key. Mm. or survivor that that's one thing we we've said like the challenge wasn't the worst it, it, i've openly said that it wasn't a great final challenge like you, you're right for a final challenge you want a big grand chat like this is your this is your big daddy like this is the last episode the last challenge who makes the final two um you want a big 
a big production value, you know, for your last challenge. And we just didn't get that with this challenge. But you're right. I kind of get that gut feeling too is, is they were running low on money by this stage. I think they wanted to... I could be wrong, but that's the gut feeling I get that that they were trying to minimise, you know, how much they were spending. Who knows? They may have already gone over budget by this stage, and um, you know, and they just couldn't afford um, uh, something that was just going to cost a lot. Which today, like, you know, every challenge is a, is a basically a grand challenge. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's a shame. Like it, it's something that I guess you know for a final final challenge, it, it sort of it didn't it didn't go out with a bang. Yeah, and I think um, I think also at that point, you know, originally they didn't really want to do it, as I mentioned, but also um, by that stage, uh, I'd say that the money was probably be starting to become an issue hmm. because it was pretty a pretty expensive undertaking, all up. And I don't know what the original. I've heard figures bandied around of about six million, but whether that's true or not, I don't know. I mean, the Americans will spend. 20 million or more, you know, it's crazy money. Um, and here's, here's us, a little country with little TV stations forking out um, millions of that. And they, they got, you know, lots of sponsors. I mean, you know, when people got kicked off the, um, the set, they would go back and they'd have the beer, like a bowl of Cadbury's chocolate sitting in the, Ladies in the hotel room that they'd be staying in. And because Cadbury's a sponsor, and I think Smith's Crisp was a sponsor. Lay's, and- Lay's chips, come Lay's. on now. Lay's. Oh, Lay's. Whoops, Sean. sorry. Good sponsors oh, of ours here on yeah, Solo, guys. Solo. A good well, friend at Intel. Um, did, did I say did I say Smiths? I meant Lay's because they sound very similar. Yeah, yes. right. They they very but much do. In the book, it mentions that that the crew had endless amounts of Solo. It actually says that Solo and and Lay's chips. So I could have pictured you, Sean, being the the Solo man. You know, like with all the stuff you've done in your background and and stuff, you could have done a bit of advertising for Solo. Yeah. I never liked it, you know, at Solo. And oh, oh no, I've blown it now. Well, edit, solo. That out, edit that out. Edit that out. Post production. Edit that out. He loves Solo. <laughs> and uh, the um, the the interesting thing was, you know, that um, uh, you know, having having some pretensions, I I, I thought that um, that I probably could have um, uh, gone down the path of actually hosting the show, but I didn't have the I didn't have the look. You didn't have the and, chiseled, uh, the the dimples and things like that. Yeah, and all that kind of thing. And and if I had done that, then I, you know, if I had the Brad Pitt look or the George Clooney look, I could have done the the solo <laughs> ad myself while eating Lay's chips. Did um did you have a favourite challenge and a least favourite challenge of the ones that you do remember? I, I did. My favourite challenge was probably the. Um, for some strange reason, I'm not sure why, it was probably the one where they had to chop, chop the block of wood, which allowed the um, flag the mast, yeah, yeah, yep. down across yep. the chasm, I suppose, and then they ran across and had to pile those boxes up and then ring the bell. Um, and I can't tell you why that particularly appealed to me, but I, I actually liked it. But that brought up an interesting. Uh, difference i think between australians and americans you know americans are very much um how do i get the money competition competition let me get there stab you in the back climb over your corpse and the australians were much more um what would you put it uh cooperative and in fact they were they were so cooperative that in that actual challenge where they were chopping and, and unfortunately at that stage you had you had one team i think that was 
full of people that knew how to use an axe. And uh, on the other team, you had people that weren't quite sure how to bring a spoon to their mouths. So <laughs> that's harsh, I know, sorry. Um, but it was just that they, it was a very diverse uh, or very differential in their ability at that point to do something like that particular challenge. And I think the one group got through very quickly and they, they won the challenge. And the other group, when the other team won the challenge, the other group um, started clapping and said, well done, guys. That was great, you know. Not, not, not before and, Jeff, of course, on um, Tapara was ripping shit into Kadena, of course, like bagging them out as they couldn't, you know, chop the damn thing. Oh, really? I don't even remember that. Yeah. But I remember watching it at the time, and I, I remember, I think it was, um, was it Brad Peters was the... Stephen Peters? Might have been Stephen, yeah. Um, I remember that they, they started clapping for the other team and, and he said, that's enough of that. We don't want any of that going on because they, they were being too nice to each other. And maybe the reason that that, that uh, series didn't really take off was because of that lack of competition, you know, that, that people were so amenable towards each other that, towards the end when there were only maybe uh, it was only when you had uh, like three or four people left that it actually started to hot up in terms of competition. And, and, you know, people love the drama of survivor and when there's not enough interpersonal drama going on, they tend to lose interest. And I think by towards the end, you know, that's what was happening and people were losing interest in it. And it was only, only towards the end that the, the few people left actually, um, you know, bumped up the competition. Did, did you remember having any favorite players while you were out there on location filming? Um, yeah, uh, I quite liked, and, and look, I'm terrible at names, you know, but I quite liked um, Joel and uh, I quite liked, <clears throat> there was a guy, I think it was the guy you were talking about, Matt, that gave you the bandana. Um, Craig. Craig. He ended up becoming a, going onto radio over in Perth. Do you know who that was? Uh, quite yeah, a, I mean, like a young, quite a handsome guy. Well, Craig, um, Craig was the last Kadena member standing. He was a big hit with, uh, he was like a fan favourite, fit fit young guy when he was about 27, 29. Not yeah, sure I think, if he I did think radio in Perth, maybe he's a secret yeah, he that he ever told us Craig. <laughs> yeah, well, one of them went on to uh, radio over there after the, after the program and uh, he was a very likeable guy. I got on quite well with him and I think, Joel was well, and I thought Joel was one of those people that had so much potential. Uh, and then I think he ended up in prison. He did. Yes, he still yeah, is there. Was, um, unfortunately, I was quite shocked about that. Actually, yeah, yeah, um, no, was quite sad. And and some of the some of the girls were quite lovely. I mean, I didn't when they came off. I I made an arrangement because at the time I was planning on doing a PhD on you know aspects of survival or survival mentality. Um, I was given the opportunity to interview a number of the people when they came off the uh, off the program. So I did talk to probably about half of them about their experiences. And um, I remember one of the girls was afraid that, you know, I'm sure that some of the people that came off Survivor had some regrets. And I think that that came, probably came from the fact that they acted in a way on Survivor that was contrary to their normal nature. 
you know, like, so, so it, it, it lacked the integrity of how they, how they actually were and how the game forced them to act. And the people that didn't come off with that kind of regret were the ones who had been the same as they normally are in normal life and on Survivor. So like if you were, if you were a complete rat bag in normal life and you're a rat bag on, on Survivor, then you'd be fine. But if you were a rat bag on Survivor, but in normal life, you're actually a pretty decent person, you kind of would have contravened your own integrity. And I saw that come out a little bit from some people that I think they probably had some regrets with and others that were afraid that they'd be seen in a certain way. You know, and reality TV has that ability to turn reasonable people into, you know, um, oh, look, that evil bastard. Based on what you saw, your experiences out there, and then I'm not sure if you then watched it when it was on TV, was it surprising to you that it wasn't more of a success? I mean, did you feel when you were out there that this would be successful and then it was surprising to you that it didn't ultimately turn out that way, unfortunately? I think, uh, I think initially I thought it would be, it would be quite successful. Um, and I remember saying to the people there when, when I first met with them, you know, um, you're likely to be famous or semi-famous from this. Uh, but I think as it went on, uh, and perhaps it didn't have that level of interpersonal rivalry that, that makes these shows what they are, um, I thought it might not go, go down that path of being terribly successful. Even though, you know, people put their heart and soul into it, it was, it was a pretty intense experience. A couple of years later, Channel 7 did a celebrity version. Did you have any potential involvement? Were you contacted? Did you, were you aware of it? Do you remember it? Was it, was it 7 or 9? Uh, Channel 7, they did a celebrity one four years after the Channel 9 version. Oh. Okay. Um, but Channel 9 did the original one. Yes, yeah, so Channel 9 did the original 2002 version. Uh, then Channel 7 did a celebrity version in 2006, and then Channel 10 picked it up in 2016, and that's what we've got today. So, oh, we're, we're, okay. we've, we've, I mean, we, earlier on this episode, we talked with Matt Bronger, a cameraman who worked on the 9 version, now the 10 version, no involvement in the Channel 7 one. And we're just, we're just trying to work out before we transition into that season for our next season, uh, if anyone maybe got a call or was involved in that at all, see if there is any connection. No, look, uh, look, I was never contacted again, um, really about Survivor. Uh, in, it's, a, it's a funny thing, actually, because I'm pretty sure, you know, that somewhere along the line, the word got out that Survivor was being filmed down there. And I remember one day there was a, um, I, I think it was a Channel 7 helicopter, um, flew over the site and, um, you know, kind of, put the word out in the media that uh, this is where we were. So I guess there'd be no love lost between the, between the two. And I'm not sure why they would contact me. I actually spoke to some of the people at one stage asking whether they thought there'd be some kind of either a sequel or a, a, a you know, a get together of the survival people at some point in the future. And they didn't think so. And I think that's because the show wasn't particularly successful. Did it lead to any opportunities for yourself? Like did having Survivor on your resume lead to anything bonus out of that experience? Oh, look, it, it looks, it looks good um, to people. If you, if, you know, when you, you know, 
talk to talk to them about stuff. After Survivor, I was contacted by Big Brother, and Big Brother wanted me to give them some ideas for challenges, which I did. Um, no I don't measuring know ones, I hope, Sean. No, <laughs> no. Um, that wasn't me. I tell you, it wasn't me. <laughs> Julie! <laughs> <laughs> But I've, I've got a, a gold-plated um, measuring tape here that was given to me by Julie. <laughs> <laughs> gold, gold-plated. Actually, that's good. Did you get to keep any memorabilia from the show? Like, did you maybe sneak something from the set or, or no, get given uh, anything? To be honest, I, I, you know, I'm a bit of a... I'm a bit of a Zen minimalist. So, you know, I, I, I think I had, uh, we got given stuff like, you know, maybe I think Reebok was a sponsor maybe. So I got a Reebok a pair of Reebok sunglasses and a Reebok bag or something like that. Uh, but no, I, and maybe some of the bandanas way back, but I just, no, I don't, didn't keep anything. I'm just picturing at the, at the, at the end of the, the set when it's all over and, and, and done, the last thing Brian said to you, said, look, uh, Sean, uh, we've had a good last couple of months, but I need you to take some of these fines for me. I've lost too many demerit points. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say he's, he's, probably, he's probably been in prison for the past 20 years for not paying the billion dollars in fines that he's accumulated. Wow. <laughs> he couldn't yeah. help himself in that car. That took a dark um, turn. I, I, in terms of like from from a resume point of view, yes, it looks good that I was on Survivor. I did did uh, get contacted by Big Brother, and then I got contacted by I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here, oh. and they flew me up to Cairns. And to be honest, I was pretty much over reality TV by then, and I went out in the bush with the two guys that were running I'm a Celebrity, get me out of there, and then. Uh, they, they were relatively young, actually. They're probably in their twenties, and I, and I said to them, uh, you know, um, that's pretty impressive that you guys have been running this show for this time at, at, at your age, you know. And I meant it. I mean, I was quite, I was being quite, um, what's the word? Sincere. Uh, sorry, sincere about it, yeah. And then one of them said to me um, something along the lines of, "Oh, you're just sucking up to uh, to get the job," and that was. Definitely the wrong thing to say to me. And I said to him, look, if you want this done and you want it done professionally, then I'm the person that can do it. But to be honest, I'm over reality TV. So you can take it or leave it. I don't give a damn. And so they, they left it, which I was quite happy with because I was pretty sick of doing that kind of thing. And the, 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 uh, the, the other aspect is that, that after Survivor, because to me, it wasn't, it wasn't real survival. I mean, I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to survival stuff, you know, and I've taught it all over the world. And, you know, TV is an appended version of survival. It's not real survival. And so uh, I was actually pretty, um, pretty disillusioned with the whole thing after that. And I, uh, I stopped running survival courses. I came back. I think I ran one more course. Uh, and then I thought, nah. I'm over this. And I went back into the military as a, um, uh, an officer to, to set up a unit that dealt with survival aspects in the military and, uh, and did that for a while. And then, and then went on to other things like, you know, Antarctica and all that. Well, that's, that's one thing that I've really enjoyed, um, Sean tracking you down and reading up about all the stuff 
you've done since, you know, your involvement with Survivor. So basically the last 20 years. You did mention at the start of this episode, um, you know, you, you had had involvement of going over to Thailand, rescuing uh, uh, people in, in brothels. Uh, I want to talk to you a bit about that, just just get an understanding of, of what, what you were doing there. And also, of course, finish up with uh, what I what I'm really fascinated about is your your antarctica sort of uh, journey that you're you're currently doing but uh, yeah we'd love to would love to hear about both of those things oh okay well in you know after survivor in the military um about 2005 i was at a fairly low point in my life and it's a it's a fairly bizarre story <clears throat> i i had my degree i was out of i was out of work um hadn't been able to get a job and uh my and I was just at a very low point and my, I'd split from my partner at the time. My daughter was staying with me. She was only five years old. I was leaning against the door, just watching her sleep. And uh, this voice came into my head and said, uh, there are children her age being abused in Southeast Asia. And <laughs> I mean, where does that come from? You know, I'm like, what? That's just crazy. Like, I mean, it was my voice, but it was like, I'd never even thought about anything like that before. And I was broke at the time. The military had owed me um, a big chunk of money and they hadn't, uh, they'd lost the paperwork twice. So it had been two years and I'd pretty much given up on it. And anyway, I remember saying to myself when this, when this voice came to my head, well, if I could do something about it, I would. And then the next week, $15,000 went into my bank account. And so I thought to myself, all right, I'll take that as a sign. And uh, about a week later, I was in Thailand and um, rescuing kids. And so from that initial rescue of five girls, I came back to Australia, gave a talk at Rotary, and a couple of guys in Rotary came up to me and said, we'd like to help you do more about this. And I said, fine, I'm listening. So we went and had breakfast, and from that, we set up an organization called The Gray Man, and uh, we went on to rescue um, 176 kids wow. and um, prevented the trafficking of another 600 um, until, um, until the, the media damaged us um, very severely back in 2012 and claimed that we had faked the rescue to make money. And, uh, and it was all bullshit, you know, and I was supposedly under the investigation by the federal police and all kinds of stuff. This is on the front page of the Australian, um, you know, a noteworthy uh, newspaper that never gets it wrong. And um, the, um, the fallout from that was it basically destroyed the charity because people believed it, you know, and here I am, what is it, eight years later, there's been no federal police investigation. In fact, I, I'm, I, I begged the federal police to investigate me and uh, they wouldn't, uh, they, they didn't have any problem with, uh, with us at all. And uh, you know, just a lazy journalist. And so um, it damaged that whole thing. So I went from there, you know, uh, kind of for, for the, for the seven years that I ran the gray man organization, um, I loved what we were doing. I mean, we were making a difference in the world. We were, we were rescuing kids. We were, we were, um, we set up a transportation network in the hill tribes and we were sending 110 children to school every day. And we were doing a lot of great stuff. And, uh, and then it all came to a grinding halt because of this uh, ridiculous um, article, which, which was actually 
which was actually created by people in Thailand because they wanted to get rid of us. But anyway, uh, so I, I spiraled down a bit, you know, into a, a bit of a depression after that. Uh, I ended up uh, realizing that I couldn't change other people. I could only change myself. Um, so I ended up becoming a Zen monk and uh, still am. And then, uh, then decided to set my go- myself another goal to, to, to move on, you know, and I'd always had this interest in Antarctica. I had been to the Arctic. I'd taught survival in the Arctic back in the late nineties. And I, I had a bit of a love affair with the whole place. Uh, basically because it's, it's really quiet there and there's not many people. <laughs> and so I didn't have to deal with a lot of dickheads. And so I then, um, I then set my solo ghosts, my goal for Antarctica. And I went and did a postgraduate certificate in Antarctic studies. And part of that was you get to go to Antarctica. And so I'm down in Antarctica doing scientific stuff as well as visiting Scott's discovery hut, which was built in like 1902 or so. And just the most amazing experience to, to be in this hut that was from the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And Antarctica has this absolutely amazing history and amazing wildlife and amazing, um, just amazing everything. And so I set it as my goal to, um to protect it you know because it's under threat from everything from uh, climate change to to uh, microplastics in the ocean and i set up captain antarctica which uh, captain antarctica is basically a, a a superhero who whose role is to protect antarctica and it's a, my way of being able to engage with people who don't necessarily know a lot about science and i'm not, i don't pretend to be a scientist myself but i can be the intermediary between scientists and the general public to let people know about Antarctica and what an amazing place it is and why we need to protect it. And so uh, that's where I am today. And I have my Captain Antarctica Facebook page, which I I think you've probably had a look at. And uh, I put up posts about Antarctica and, you know, um, my experiences and all the rest of it. And because I think um, we have a renewable future, and it's a really interesting thing, you know, that there's a lot of people out there poo-pooing renewables and how they're this, this, that and the other and they're bad. And there's a whole bunch of myths about um, how unsustainable they are. And, and it's all rubbish. But the interesting thing is that they did a survey in America just recently and they found that Democrats and Republicans all believe that by 2050 that we will be basically a renewable society. So in spite of all the misinformation that's out there, the general public thinks that that's the way we're going. And so I set myself a goal, whether it will happen or not, is is going to depend on the technology. I set myself a goal of flying an electric aircraft from uh, Scott Base, New Zealand Scott Base, on the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole, which is about 1,300 kilometres, which is much further than an electric aircraft can go at the moment. But there are breakthroughs every week. And uh, who knows, you know, two years from now, it might be possible. Wow. It's, it's incredible, just an incredible story that you're telling with everything that you've kind of experienced. And I have to say, in all my years of interviewing people, Sean, I think you're the very first person to ever say to me that I decided to become a Zen monk. I just, I just, <laughs> I, you know, like that's, 
wake up. Oh, I'm going to become a Zen monk. Sure. That's, okay. that's not that's not common. But apparently, <laughs> not as common as you think. Uh, I thought this was I thought thought this was the Zen monk interviews. <laughs> yeah, Zen monk archives. Uh, well, I was going to talk about Buddhism and everything. What are you guys doing? False pretenses. <laughs> Uh oh! I, I won't tell you that I'm a journalist, and I used to work for Uncle Rupert. So, um, I'll all just, right, that's it. Yeah, show me your home address. I'm sending people around. <laughs> Sean, I'd love to know how long would that flight expect to expected to be from from the New Zealand base to the to the South Pole? How long would would you expect to be in the plane? Uh, well, uh, if if the batteries uh, were capable of you know providing that amount of energy. Um, you could probably do it, and the, and the speed of the plane, the plane that I was looking at, uh, you could probably do it in about eight to ten hours. Uh, quick follow-up, how do you get back? Recharge. <laughs> is, is there a PowerPoint at the South Pole? Like you just plug well, the in South and... Pole has uh, Amazon Scott base, the American base. Ah. And uh, they they have power there. A lot, right. of, a lot of the power in, although a lot of the power in, um, in Antarctica comes from diesel. A lot of the places there are now becoming more self-sufficient in wind and solar as right. well. Okay. That's so I would, question, I would recharge ben, and, and I would come back. Get an answer like that. <laughs> and can I just say, Ben, for, for any of our listeners, listeners that are, are fascinated about planet Earth or, or Antarctica itself, you've got to get on Sean's facebook page i've been following it now for a couple of months and it, it it's it's amazing like and and sean you, you put up a lot of different facts about antarctica that you know i read you often do it daily you you do post videos of of you, uh, you obviously you're you're learning to fly a, a planes at the moment and, and you often do videos and it, it really is it's it's one of my favorite pages on facebook at the moment uh you know it's a lot of knowledge you can learn and it's interesting and, and i'm I'm definitely going to follow your your Antarctica journey, and and hopefully one day, you know, you, you, I get to to watch a video of you in Antarctica that just after you've uh, you've flown the plane. Well, thanks for that, Matt, and I I hope that uh, I will get there. But you know, as I I think I said to you uh, earlier on before we started that um, I'm not you know as as a Zen monk, <laughs> I'm not attached to the outcome. Uh, and someone else might get there before me, and I'm fine with that. But uh, I'd be very happy just to get back to Antarctica and actually be flying around down there, um, even if I don't make it to the South Pole. So um, eventually I'll get back to Antarctica. I'm, I'm supposed to be, before COVID-19 came along, I was supposed to be lecturing on some uh, ships going to Antarctica. Um, but that's been put on hold until they decide what they're going to do about um, shipping, cruising again. Which I was going to say, actually, on that topic, I'm I'm a Hobart boy, Sean, and we're kind of the uh, the Australian base for, yeah, for Antarctica down way. there. So I'm imagining you've you've spent some time in Hobart. I'm assuming. I have. I've uh, I've visited the um, Australian Antarctic Division mm-hmm. in Hobart um, as Captain Antarctica, and I've interviewed some of their people there. Great. Uh, and I stay in contact with them because. Uh, I'm hoping that they might be the ones that will ship my plane to Antarctica. So I've, I've been very nice to them. Uh, and Hobart, Hobart has some fascinating Antarctic history. It's got, oh, yeah. it's full of it. And uh, have you been to Mawson's um, hut? Um, I mean, 
when I was well, working at dear old Rupert's newspaper, I had to follow the Governor General while he did a tour of it. So I will say yes. Ah, there <laughs> you go. Been, it's I will say like it's it's kind of one of those things I think that when you live in a city and there's a tourist attraction, you don't generally do it if you know what I mean. It's kind of it's I one know of it those. Well. And when yeah. I was in when I was living in the Blue Mountains, um, I'd never been to Janolan Caves, which was not that far away. Uh, so I understand it very well, but. I actually went to Hobart that time to to visit the Mawson's Hut reproduction. It's quite a little... I mean, I, yeah, I, I know growing up in school, we would constantly have lots of Antarctic history because of Hobart's history. We actually had in the 90s, there was um, Dreamworld of all companies decided to open up Antarctic Adventure. It was kind of like a mini experience they called it a theme park but it really wasn't um kind of in salamanca place and it was kind of like you would go in there and there'd be like a room filled with snow and like you would experience like a hut and then there was like a a virtual reality experience 90 style of you on like a snow toboggan it was ridiculously overpriced and only lasted about six months and they put millions of dollars into it and it was oh, never really? to be talked about ever again well, um but dream well, world maybe- ran it yeah it was crazy Maybe that's maybe that's where they got the idea for um, the Antarctic um, Center in um, in Christchurch. Maybe, yeah. Which has a room where you go in and it, uh, they turn on a blizzard for you, and you get yeah. to experience it. And yeah, it's not bad. It's, yeah, well, it's, we've actually. Um, it's fun fact. You probably know this, uh, Sean, but uh, not only is Hobart the uh, Australian base for Antarctic exploration, it's also the French international french headquarters for antarctic exploration in hobart so there's a fun fact for people out there oh, there you go yeah actually i didn't know that I, I knew that the um because i spent time in christchurch you know i knew that the christchurch one was the center for the american mm-hmm. the zealand and the italian mm-hmm. um once but i didn't know about that about right. france so i've learned something new thank you there you go yeah. Can I just say, Sean, you've made Ben's day. Talking anything Tasmanian. <laughs> ben, I may as well just put my headphones down here and let you guys go at it because Ben will have you bailed up for hours talking. And talking AFL. Matt, Matt just yeah. Matt goes and has a sook when we start talking about Hobart and <laughs> AFL. He goes off into his little corner. Well, I, I would be with you. I would be with you, Matt, as soon as you start talking about AFL. <laughs> but I really like I really like Hobart. And I was supposed to be there um, in a month's time, but all the events got cancelled. Uh, bloody Gutwin, bloody Tasmania, Jesus. Yeah, a bit disappointing, but but uh, it has got the, just the best Antarctic history. I, I loved it. I'd never been to Tasmania until I went there earlier this year. No, last year, earlier this year um, to Hobart. And um, I loved it. It's a fantastic place. Well, I have a feeling, Sean, if they ever decide to do a cold version of Survivor in the snow or something, you would be the man for the job to get the call call up to, to be involved in the, in the show again because uh, they probably never will because they, they like, they've realised that they like the bikinis? nice beaches and the bikinis and all that. They But if they ever do decide to mix it up, I'm sure that you'll be the first one they call. I, I, I hate the cold. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but, um, there goes that illusion of Captain Antarctica. You just ruined it. Actually, yeah, but luckily, luckily, the gear I have it keeps me warm no matter what. You know, the gear I had in Antarctica would keep me alive down to minus fifty, so I was pretty happy. Uh, just, but if they ever do Antarctica, Survivor Antarctica, I'm the man. Well, I've just thought about it. With with all your experience, would you ever consider being a contestant on the show? I mean, you would know how to handle yourself. Hell no! <laughs> Hell no! <laughs> 
having to deal with a group of people in that situation, <laughs> I would rather put a bullet in my head right now. Wow. Are Zen monks allowed to do that? <laughs> no, I'm just saying theoretically. <laughs> however, you're a however, peaceful group, aren't you? You're allowed to be looking at a gun. <laughs> Edit that out. Edit. Blame Julie. I've used every, every weapon under the sun. Yeah. <laughs> now, however, actually, yeah. No, I would not like to be a contestant on Survivor. I would. It's a good thing. Well, if they. It's a good thing they don't allow. Uh, I don't think they allow you to carry weapons maybe on Survivor. Maybe you can carry a knife. Matt but, could have used one. You know, <laughs> if I wasn't a Zen monk, I would probably stab everyone to death within the first week. <laughs> I think we've ever had a Zen monk contestant in Survivor, Matt, have we? Oh, that would be so good. Oh, they're really boring. Have... They just they just sit there and meditate through the whole thing. <laughs> we've so had a Aussie few... coach. Yeah, you. we've had. I was going to say coach, coach, but coach Wade. He, he, he like that was an well, American Lance, contestant. Lance was halfway there. He meditated every yeah. bloody day. Yeah. Shona was part of the meditation group we discovered recently. So, you know, all this sort of stuff. Sean, I have to say, uh, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you and, and learning all about this. Uh, it was sort of a very exciting opportunity to be able to chat with you and learn about this because, you know, we, we, we learn a lot from the contestants. You know, we learn a lot from Lincoln. We're speaking to Stephen Peters next week. So kind of, you know, we learn from all these different angles. We obviously learn a lot from Matt Bronger earlier this episode about kind of the, the behind the scenes stuff with the camera operators and all that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, the challenges is also that aspect where it's, it's interesting and that survival aspect, the food, all that kind of stuff, because it really does, I think, create a complete picture of kind of this show that we've been talking about now for multiple weeks. So you, you're obviously uh, very passionate about what you do. Uh, and I'm very uh, honored that we've been able to chat with you today and best of luck for all everything moving forward. Keep us in tune about Antarctica and everything, because that, that definitely sounds like a, an incredibly fun opportunity for you to be able to do that. And we wish you the best of luck with it. Well, thanks for that, Ben. It was very nice to be on here today and talk about this. And, you know, it was 20 years ago, and I can't remember if uh, I signed a confidentiality agreement. So you might want to just cut out everything that I've actually said. <laughs> we'll, we'll blame Julie. We'll blame yeah, Julie. We'll blame Julie. We'll blame yeah, Julie. I think, I think Julie forged my signature on the confidentiality <laughs> agreement because she was like that. Typical Julie. But, but, uh, ben, look, um, and just Julie, like what Ben's- Julie, I love you. Julie, I love yeah. you. I just want to say that I love you. I don't, Julie. If you came up with that challenge, I don't love you. Sean, look, like Ben said, it's been great having you on the show. Look, you're an absolute inspirational guy. Like I do, I follow you. Like I said, on social media, I'm going to continue following you. You know, you're the sort of person that, uh, you know, sets his mind on something and you do it. And I really respect that. And it's been great having you on the show, listening to all your experiences from you know 20 years ago on, on, on season one, Australian Survivor. And, uh, to hear it, to hear a bit about what you've done in, uh, since then has been fascinating as well. So thanks again, Sean, for uh, coming on the show. And I'll definitely be, uh, be interested to see what you're up to in the, in the coming years. Thanks, Matt. Enjoyed uh, talking to you guys. And uh, I, I'd be happy. If, are, you, are you still in? Um, you're not in um, Hobart anymore, are you, Ben? No, the, um, the little maple leaf behind me might give you a bit of a clue. I'm actually in Canada now. so I was uh, wondering about that. Yeah, I was wondering about that. A little yeah, bit on the uh, opposite spectrum of Hobart. But, uh, you know, I mean, you could start getting in that electric plane, testing it out over the Pacific. You might Br get there eventually. Bring That's the possible. electric... Bring the electric plane down for, down to Whalers Way for the reunion next year. Yeah. Next November, there's a 20-year reunion. I want oh. you to fly that electric plane down there for, as a trial run. 
Well, I might only I might only get like an hour from Brisbane before it drops out of the sky because I don't think the batteries are good enough Solar. yet. Solar, solar, is plenty of sun in Queensland. Now, Sean, you you are in Brisbane because I'm I'm in Brisbane. You are in Brisbane right now, aren't you? That's where you're based. I am. Yes. Despite it's very cold in Brisbane, as you can see in the background. <laughs> Oh, Sean, look, it, look pleasure, and hopefully, hopefully, Sean, I actually get to meet you in person because I've got a lot more questions to ask you uh, about Antarctica. So be, hopefully we can make that happen one day. I'd be very happy to, to, to get together and not talk about AFL. And, well, we're not going to talk about AFL anymore here either because we're going to wrap up a very interestingly fun, amazing episode, Matt Dyson. It's kind of where we're wrapping up two interviews here. It's sort of a first, as I said, in that middle section that we've never really done, I guess, a, a dual interview, two interviews in one episode. But we thought it was important to, I guess, do a behind-the-scenes look. We spoke with Jack Robin several uh, months ago, of course, and we're going to have a big behind-the-scenes one for you next week. But, uh, yeah, this... And I'm going to applaud Matt Dyson for this. This was none of my doing. This was Matt's suggestion. And, Matt, I've got to say, great idea, mate. And I think this has turned out well speaking to, to both Matt and Sean today. Well, like Ben, I like when you praise me. Well, somebody's got to do it. I'm not going to praise you More. for your Survivor game, so I've got to find something <laughs> to praise say- you for. Normally you're bagging the shit out of me, so to get a little praise from Mr. Ben Waterworth, I'll take that any day of the week. But no, look, you're right, Ben. It's it's something we talked about, and um, you know, I think it's, I think it's worked out well. I think having having uh, Matt and and Sean on the show gives a good insight of what was happening behind the camera, and uh, I for one am very interested in that. And if we're doing a, a, an archives podcast like we are, Ben, it would be rude of us not to um, you know get a few of these um, other people on that were involved in the show. So. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I'm sure you did too. I'm sure hopefully our, our listeners have, but I, I really did. I've learned a lot from Matt and Sean. And I think it was really, you know, insightful with both of them. You know, Matt talking a lot about working on both versions. You know, that's something that it's going to be, as we said during that chat, very rare to find people who have worked on both. And I still am going to be amazed if we can find someone who's worked on all three versions. That will be incredible. And then with Sean, you know, learning all about these challenge aspects and kind of how he got involved and that Julie pretty much is to blame for everything. So, you know, there you go. We, <laughs> we learn new things uh, all the time with it. But this kind of does lead us into next week. Uh, big, big one. We, we've... we've I've spoiled it throughout the season. I'm not going to say we've. I'm not going to put the blame on Matt. I dropped the ball with this one uh, whenever it was. But we, we've maybe saved the best to last when it comes to uh, the big, big wigs. And this is essentially, you would almost say, the granddaddy, the boss of this season, the EP, executive producer, Stephen Peters himself. Now, we've alluded to this before. We, we recorded this, I want to say, eight months ago, Matt. Uh, this was this was recorded in 2019. This was right at the end of 2019. Coronavirus hadn't even been heard of when we recorded this interview. Good times they were. But um, so it's going to be interesting, I think, for some people listening to this who have been keeping up with this week to week because there will be things said, I guess, in this that are kind of sounding like, well, hang on a minute, Ben and Matt talked about that with this person or something's brought up that maybe we haven't followed up with this, that or everything else. So just... To spoil the illusion of podcasting, there is that aspect to remember. But all of that aside, it is a, a fascinating interview. This this was our longest interview until we interviewed a few of the people in this season. So it's it's long. It's a two-hour interview. And you kind of, I think, learn, I would say, Matt, the majority of what you want to know. He, he answers the questions, most of them. Still a couple there that I'm going to chase him up on for a while if I ever do this book. But... For the most part, it's a, a complete interview with most of the questions you want answered, and it's a great chat. Stephen Peters next week. 
Well, I know it's I know it's a fascinating interview, Ben, but you're right. It's been that long. I'm actually excited to to listen to it again because it, it's been that long since I we did the interview that I, I sort of forget some of the stuff we spoke about. But I just I remember at the time, uh, you know, thinking how good is this? You know, getting the executive producer on and, and you know, sort of hearing his version of what what went down in season one. Um, you know, it's it's something you could only get from the executive producer. So it was such an important interview to have and to have it finished finishing off this season uh, is a great way to go out and I, I think too it's maybe did we do that interview i know we did it after lincoln but i don't know if we did that before we'd interviewed any contestants maybe we had interviewed lucinda i can't remember but i know we'd only at least interviewed lincoln beforehand yeah i'm pretty sure it was straight after lincoln um so yeah and it was you know what in a way it, it could kind of be a good thing that we didn't have that we got to interview him before we heard some other stories so we kind of just got his version of, of what went down. I think that's important. So, no, Ben, look, I'm I'm excited to uh, listen back to it. It's a great interview and by all means, stay tuned for that. And we've only got a couple of episodes to go. We're basically, this is our third last episode next week with Stephen Peters uh, for season one. We are coming back. We're not cancelled or anything like that. We're just saying for season one in general. We've, we've teased a few times about a potential reunion kind of going on and we'll have more of that at the end of next week's episode to kind of give you a few details about that. And then what will be happening for our big finale for season one because it has been a very interesting journey to get to this point and we really are getting to the sad part of closing off this season but still plenty of exciting things to come of course like us on facebook follow us on twitter and instagram remember if we get to the magical number of a thousand on any of them we're going to get matt's audition tape we may or may not have a contestant holding us for ransom for matt to show that um before they appear on any other episode so i kind of like that person even more hello craig and of course if we get to 500 well matt's not swinging on the vine anymore did we not say it's a thousand combined or i can't even remember what our last promise was matt well i think it's all out the window ben craig's holding me to ransom here so i've kind of got no choice i'm gonna have to uh, produce the video this video <laughs> sooner rather than later yeah i think you will and like i tell you what i'm telling you now if you show yours i'll show one of mine like i will <laughs> gladly show me <laughs> failing to get on the show at least yours like has a happy ending do you still have your one that you got on for channel 10 uh, I do somewhere um, on a different laptop somewhere I could track down. Yeah, that, look, I'll... that might be one you save when we get to your season. Maybe I don't know, but like, I mean, I want to see that. I want to see what got you on the show. That would be kind of the compare the pair. Yeah. <laughs> what look? I'll have to track. It? I'll have to track some of these down. And um, yeah, look, like I said, it's been a while since someone said, you know, I'll show you yours if you show me mine. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, is that did I say that right? I don't know. Sam, yeah. I think I got that. Yeah, who, who cares? Sure. Um, but, other, so I think I got that. Another thing too, I'll quickly add, just um, people to see it on our social media as well during the week is that we are next week recording our finale episode, which will air in a couple of weeks. Now we're also kind of using that as a listener questions episode. So our aim will be at the end of every single season to have that final episode where we can ask. Answer, sorry, your questions for people at home. So if you miss that social media post, maybe you don't on social media, you just listen to us. We we are wanting to hear from you. If you've got any thoughts from this season, you want to ask, you've been dying to ask Matt something all season, me to ask something all season, send it in, Australian Survivor Archives at hotmail.com. 
hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, send us a message on those. We will keep them aside and we will answer them on the episode. We will be joined on that episode as well by Cable, of course, who joined us earlier on this season, and Matt Carr, a long-term listener, big fan, one of the biggest season one super fans you'll ever find, who have mentioned a few times throughout this season. So they will both be joining it, kind of just as a general wrap. But as I said, we will be answering your questions. So get them into us. We are recording that next week. So by the time you're listening to this, you've maybe got like four or five days to get them into us. So uh, we, we would love to hear your questions and we will answer them. Any of them, any of them, season one related. Don't ask Matt about season five. Keep that for season five. We know he sucks. Wait to season five to ask him how much he sucked. We're, we're talking about season one. Just when I was starting to like you again, Ben, you had to go out and say that. That's all right. No one likes me for longer than three minutes. It's kind of my life. Three minutes. You're a lot done in three minutes. Just ask my exes. Uh, thank you very much for everyone for tuning in today to Sean and to Matt Bronger. It's been an absolute pleasure having them both on the show. My name is Ben and hashtag blame Julie. My name's Matt Dyson and why didn't I come up with Captain Antarctica? <laughs>